I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. <laughs> Hey up you pop crazy youngsters and welcome to the 8th episode of Chart Music, the podcast where it's always half past 7 on a Thursday evening. I'm your host, Al Needham, and as always I've got two lovely music writers on the sofa with me. Taylor Parks. Afternoon. And Simon Price. Hello. Glad to, glad to have you back again. But before we get into any of the sexy, sexy chart action of years gone by, we have to make mention of the announcement from the BBC earlier last week that they're going to launch a Top of the Pop style programme. According to an article in The Guardian, the new 30-minute show will feature sketches and interviews as well as live performances. What do we think about this? Well, the first fucking flag is, is the red flag is sketches and interviews. Can you imagine how fucking awful that's going to be? Songs and sketches and jokes old and new. It sounds horribly like uh, <laughs> it's ain't half art mum for the, for, the, for the millennials. I mean, Top of the Pops first time round started going wrong, didn't it? When they started fucking with the format. And, you know, OK, you know, we've seen yeah. doing this podcast that they tweak the format in tiny ways here and there. But, you know... Really, it's it's the most simple idea in the world, isn't it? You know, you just get the bands who are in the charts, get them to play their songs and have a little link in between. And that's it. You don't need fucking... I mean, who's it going to be? You know, one, one of these Russell comedians that they have nowadays or James Corden oh. or something. Well, apparently you know. James Corden's involved, but... It, it's, Is he? The first announcement that the BBC made that he will not present the programme. So, you know, that's a that's a good start. Nobody needs that. But the idea that uh, the, the idea that they're going they're going to do sketches that just brings to mind. I know some grime lad going. This parrot is bare dead, fam. You get me? Yeah. I I actually don't mind James Corden. Even you know, even though I said that, I'm I'm one of these people. You know, I, I I will stand up for him and I'll stand up for Banksy and all the other people that you're meant to kind of round up on these days. Oh, I know. Simon. I know. I don't care. I I'm just this. The, the only way of being controversial now is to have a front lash against the backlash, you know. So I'm always thinking of my career. I'm always yeah. one step ahead. You know, I'm, I'm like a fucking Poundland Katie Hopkins here, <laughs> right? But, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Taylor, what do you reckon about this, this format that they've, that they've announced? I'm the host. I asked Taylor what he thinks about the format, if you don't mind. Uh, we don't need you, need them. Out of the way. <laughs> Taylor, what do you think about this, this new format? No, it's just TV people, isn't it? They have to fiddle with stuff that doesn't need it to justify their existence and their position and their salary. Oh, we can't mm. leave that as it is, uh, otherwise I might as well not be here. I mean, to me, it sounds like they're trying to compress one episode of The Tube into half an hour. That wouldn't have been a bad idea. Most episodes of The Tube could have done with some pruning. <laughs> but, yeah, of course it's going to be terrible. Everything's terrible that these people come up with. I love the tube. <laughs> I'm going to put a come and get me plea out to anybody listening to this. If you want to do a tube podcast, I'm there, man. I fucking love that show. Ah. Why is that? 
because you know if you were of the age to be sort of just starting to dip your toes into alternative music mm. and you know you were sort of listening to Janice Long show you weren't staying up late enough to hear Peel then suddenly all these bands were in your face and it was I suppose it was a kind of forerunner of the kind of much denigrated um, zoo TV or magazine format that came mm. in things like like the word but I was I was it just caught me at the right age and I I did I did like the kind of semi-anarchic quality to it and you would see people that you previously only heard big brothers talking about like you know Iggy Pop suddenly turning up in plastic trousers and mm. you're thinking who the fuck is this terrifying old man <laughs> old man he's what about 36 you know um and and yeah just just stuff like that twisted sister put in a performance that was more punk rock than you know certainly any any footage i've seen of actual punk rock and it was it was an incredible show i thought the tube and how else would you've heard of paul young and annie lennox you know hey listen nothing wrong with paul young i'm actually i'm dying to write a massive you know overlong um you know internet blog about no parlay uh, which you know people read the first <laughs> people are going to read the first three paragraphs and give up but yeah i mean i'll i'll step up for Banksy, for james corden and for paul young in his gray suit with little white and black flecks in it <laughs> but anyway yeah we're going way off topic here i am sorry but but we're not we're, we're not though are we we're not going off topic because this is what this is what the, the new top of the pops is going to be like except a shit version you know Anyway, and they, and they haven't even got the balls to call it Top of the Pops. They have to call it something else because, well, we know why. Yeah. Yes, we do. Yes. So this week we are putting our asses back on the time sofa and we're going all the way back to September the 24th, 1981. Simon, you've said on more than one occasion that 1981 is the absolute pinnacle of pop music. So let's start with you laying out your case. Yeah, roll over David Hepworth and tell John Savage the news. Never mind 1971, <laughs> never mind 1964. The greatest year for music ever was 1981. And uh, if it wasn't 1981, then maybe it was 1979, which we've dealt with earlier. Um, it was certainly that golden period just after punk where um, kind of the door had been pushed ajar by punk for all these absolute kind of weirdos and outsiders and... In some case, in some cases, outright lunatics to um, come in and not just have minor hit records, but to have number one hit records and to actually seize the spotlight. And um, it's, it's funny that you know, punks themselves have kind of run out of steam. You've got a few of them still knocking around. You've got John Lydon and Susie Sue still making decent records and having hits. But really, it's people who the punks would have literally spat at, like like Adam <laughs> Ant and uh, maybe Kevin Rowland and people like that. Or you've got these people who sat back and watched punk happen uh, in provincial towns and cities and then maybe a year or so later thought, right, well, we're going to do what we think punk is. And for them, it might have meant um, getting hold of a synthesizer, getting a reel-to-reel tape machine and a slide projector and making kind of weird Stalinist vegan pop in a in a warehouse in Sheffield, <laughs> like, you know, the Human League. And, you know, so so oh. I, that... We made this, our own fun in them days, yeah, didn't yeah, we? yeah, yeah. Uh, and this this is when pop gets interesting for me uh, again. You know, not saying pop had never been interesting, but but for me, it's one of those. Um, I, I suppose there was a slight kind of revival of it, circa Britpop, but to, to nowhere near the same extent. Where kind of people with interesting ideas could break into the top ten, um, and and I absolutely loved it. And this episode we're going to watch, it's not 
the best illustration of that. There were better episodes that year, but it's a pretty decent slice of nineteen eighty one life. It's you know, it, it does a fairly good job of making the case for me, I think. Taylor, how do you feel about nineteen eighty one? Yeah, in general culture it's still the Aventies, that period we were talking about the other week, the very distinct mm. period with a character of its own between yeah. the late seventies and early eighties. Um, if you look at TV shows from that period or footage of London or newsreel, it's indistinguishable from 1978 or 1979, but not if you look at mm. Top of the Pops. Pop has moved on ahead, um, always mm. a couple of years ahead. In this whole post-war period, Britain tended to look the same for quite long periods of time and then change quite rapidly. Just the look of the country and uh, the look of people it would change quite rapidly in quite a short space of time. Um, like the 60s still looks like the 50s mm. uh, yeah. on the street until you get to about 65, 66 and there's a delayed reaction to the Beatles and everything's just a little bit sharper and then the next change is uh, the very end of the 60s, start of the 70s and there's a delayed reaction to hippies and that's when you start getting floral shirts and big sideburns on people like Bob Wellings <laughs> and Reg Varney. Um <laughs> And then it sort of stays long-aired and drably flash until about 78, 79, and then suddenly there's a delayed reaction to punk and there's a lot less air between hem and ankle and uh, the hair gets chopped away. Um, if you look at the first three series of the Sweeney uh, film between 74 and 76, they, it might as well hmm. be filmed on the same day. And then you look at the episodes filmed in 1978 and suddenly it's a different world. Everyone's got proper suits. Yeah, and um, Reagan and Coulter are wearing clash badges and stuff like that, aren't they? So 1981 in pop and 1981 <laughs> in life don't look the same. And it's not until about 84, 85 that things catch up. But by that point, pop and and the street look the same. They're in sync and... That's sort of a sign of the beginning and the end, really, or at least the beginning and the end of that period where pop music raced out ahead and mm. everyone else had to catch it up. Yeah, and it was also a time where, I mean, 1981 was a fucking shit year. Uh, I remember my mum and dad got made unemployed within, like, two weeks of each other. And, you know, I was I was uh, starting my second year of school and I was already thinking, well, what, what the fuck am I going to do when I leave school? You know, so you've got all this horribleness going on. You've got riots, you've got, um, you know, all these factories shutting down. But Top of the Pops, on a couple of occasions, would reflect that. But a lot of the times it didn't. You know, there was all this, you know, we've got, it's obviously the new romantic period. Although how much of that we're going to see in this episode, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll find out. But uh, yeah, it was just like horrible life and sparkly television. Sparkly pop TV, if you will. I think the New Romantics do reflect what was going on, and here's why. You know, most of them were people who'd been living in squats in London, or, you know, they're, they're, mm. they're people from grim northern towns or grim midland cities or whatever, uh, and they were reacting against the, the drabness of the uh, the Aventies, as Taylor calls it, and, you know, the first two or three yeah. years of Thatcher. Um Reacting in their own way uh, with with escapism, mm. and you know, it, it... sort of like. Um, uh, sorry, Simon. It's it's sort of like um, sort of glam redux. Then is what you say. They're all glam kids. All the new romantics were former, you know, Bowie fans, except for Adamant, who never liked Bowie much. He was a bowling kid. Um, so mm. yeah, th there was that lurking in the background, certainly. But I think you had three 
reactions to um, Thatcherism and, and what was going on at the time. You had um, escapism, which was the neuromantic thing. You had social realism, which, you know, two-tone and all of that. Ghost yeah. time. And mm-hmm. you also had goth, which was just kind of um, uh, Cold War dread, really. It was the fear that we're all going to die. Not even the fear, the absolute certainty that we're all going to die. Um mm. So, so, yeah. so, and you had the birdie song. And you had the birdie song, which I think was a reaction to uh, Mitterrand. Uh, no, I, I don't know. I can't, I can't, I can't make that one <laughs> work. So, shall we have a look at the news? Yeah. Radio One News. In the news, Billy Connolly kicks in a photographer at Heathrow Airport. Belize gains its independence from the UK. The Liberal Party have voted to form an electoral pact with the SDP, while the Labour Party deputy leadership battle between Tony Benn and Dennis Healy is reaching a climax. The EU is debating the abolition of corporal punishment in schools, but the big news this week is that youths on a Scottish housing estate have been warned by the police to desist in playing a game called Voodoo, which involves wrapping petrol-soaked rags around a wooden cross, setting it on fire, and then chasing each other with it. Sounds fun. <laughs> Amazing. I'm going to do yeah, that tonight. Well, it kind of pisses on a Rubik cube, doesn't it? <laughs> I actually did a bit of that myself because um, one of my mates... Um, his dad had a speedboat, which uh, makes makes him sound way more flash than he actually was. But they had... or he, he he won on bullseye. Yeah, yeah, he probably went on sale of the century or something. But um, but there are all these canisters of speedboat fuel lying around his house. And on a Friday <laughs> night, uh, when his parents had gone out to the pub, we'd nick a bit of it and we pour it into glass lemonade bottles and go up to the park and just, uh, you know, make our own petrol bombs and throw them and smash them, <laughs> just for fun. So, you know, it's kind of nice just to think that in Scotland they were doing a more, it's kind of weird religious version of what we were doing anyway. Although we we did actually yeah. throw one, we threw one of those petrol bombs into a church once, which um, could have gone no. horribly wrong. But, yeah, because we were pissed off because they wouldn't let us play table tennis. Oh, you know, you nearly invented black metal. I tell you, yeah, yeah. I mean, people go on about Varg Vikerns, that Norwegian guy, but God. it's all going on in South Wales in the early 80s. Yeah, I mean, luckily, um, it smashed <laughs> in this kind of um, uh, ceramic-tiled lobby and nothing actually... There was a pool of flaming petrol, but nothing actually caught. And, um, you know, the, the guy who ran it came and chased us up the road and grabbed us and... It's one of these kind of um, experiences I look back and think my, my life could have forked off in a completely different direction because he, he just, mm. he was this fast little Welsh guy, like a kind of scrum half type, legged it at the road after us, grabbed us and said, right, do you realise if I call the police now, you're going to Borstal and your life is basically over. Uh, I'm I'm going to let you go, but, but never do anything as stupid as that again. So he let us go and I still can't believe Fucking it hell. that, you know, my, my life took a real turn there. So, uh, yeah, uh, petrol-based fun in the early 80s. We're all at it. <laughs> in Kidderminster, we couldn't play voodoo because we didn't have the surplus crucifixes. <laughs> so uh, we just had to piss on <laughs> Rubik's Cubes. <laughs> on the cover of the NME this week is Kim Wilde. Uh, on the cover of Smash Hits, Gary Newman. Yes. It's that edition of uh, Smash Hits which features... Clove Seller George helping to destroy a 12-inch of stars on 45 and was one of the first sightings of Boy George when he was still working as a clove seller on a market somewhere. 
He got everywhere, didn't he? Because he was on top of the pops in the audience, dancing with the Jets, that rock, that crap rockabilly band as well. Yes, that's right. Time. And he was also on something else. Have you seen that? Have you seen that episode of Something Else where they're having a, a discussion about fashion and oh, he's he basically well? schooling all his manners in all these punks who and he's saying oh you got to dress a bit different and and all the punks are, are going oh you know you, you're looking a bit uh, oh, you know man. so yeah yeah he was he was all over the place. I- I love Boy um, George. I mean, anyone anyone who's met me or seen me will, won't be too surprised to know that I'm a, a Boy George fan. But also, it's it's great to hear you mention his smash hits there because what what a fucking brilliant mm. magazine that was. You know, just earlier I mentioned things like Janice yeah. Long and The Tube being this kind of gateway to discover alternative stuff. Um, smash hits was like that for me. I didn't read the NME when I was 14. Maybe I did when yeah. I was 16, but when I was 14, it was, you know smash hits with the kind of with the alternative page or they'd have you know a, a piece about the human league or the smiths or, or, or actually the smiths was a little bit later but yeah you know you know what i mean they they'd have um they'd have the mm. indie chart with all these bands like 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 yes. swell maps and and the only ones so i you know and magazine and you, and you could only kind of vaguely imagine what these bands sounded like but it was just your first glimpse into that world and it was just a brilliant clever witty subversive magazine from about 79 to 85 86 it was just you know for me it yeah. was the, the you know the yeah. best music magazine the number one lp in the uk at the minute is abacab by genesis the number one single in the us is endless love by diana ross and lionel richard and the number one lp is tattoo you by the rolling stones so what were we doing in September 1981, Taylor? I was uh, in the process of swapping football for music, mm. as I thought you had to for some reason. It's funny that, even though I'm a bit older than Taylor, um, I didn't swap uh, football for music until uh, a few years later. But I did do it. It did seem like, you know, I got to about 16 or 17 and, and uh, you know, I couldn't be into the Smiths and Liverpool Football Club. Also, football got a bit... <laughs> but this, this, you know, this is sort of mid-80s I'm talking about. Um I, I did hope I could give you a really, really specific answer to this question, what was I doing? Because I have kept all my diaries from when I was a kid. And so, somewhere in this somewhere in this house is that diary. And I looked and I looked and I can't find it right now. Um, but do you know what? If I find it, maybe we'll drop it on the Facebook page or something. I'll just put a JPEG. Oh, definitely, of, yeah. Of what I definitely. Was doing. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't... I don't think I was pouring out my innermost thoughts. It's probably just like little things like, played football or went to see my mm. nan um but yeah basically um generally speaking um 1981 this particular episode was was uh, just a couple of days it was what is it 24th of september the yes. one we're looking at that was the day before my yes mate that was the day for my 14th birthday uh oh so, yeah um and uh on my 14th birthday because i didn't have many friends um my my treat was to go with my mum and my best friend who lived next door, just the three of us, to a a, a fancy burger place in Cardiff and um, have have a burger meal. And uh, my big surprise was uh, the lights went down and they came out with a Knickerbocker glory with old sparklers in my it, singing God. happy birthday to me. You were living the life, weren't I you? I tell you, man. Yeah. <laughs> I've been away and I've, I've talked about my... my um, boarding school trauma in a previous episode but I'd just come back to <laughs> Wales uh, only about a year earlier and I was finding it hard to reintegrate um, but yeah I was I was about to start the uh, third year of the comp comprehensive school in Barry, and yeah. I'd very much bought into two-tone by this point so when I look at photos of myself 
I've got, you know, sort of half a centimetre long hair, like a member of Madness. Um, mm. I've, I've got a red Fred Perry braces, um, nice. stay pressed or skin tight jeans and uh, either Dr. Martin's or kind of tassel loafers, you know, that kind of look. Yeah. I was so into two-tone. Um, I bet you I, had I bet you had a load of badges down one side of your jacket as well, didn't you? I used to clank when I walked because I because <laughs> I I couldn't get into the idea that you just wear your favourite just wear like a a sort of tasteful handful of badges. I had to wear all my badges at once. Um, so like like a North Korean general. It was like chainmail. It was awful. And um, <laughs> I, I remember, and I was still dressing like that a couple of years later when we finished our O levels, and uh, a bunch of us went to the pub to try and get served for a pint for the first time. And um, and, and my mate Suzanne um, uh, said said to me, um, Simon, um, can't can't you take that jacket off? You look you look like you're fifteen. <laughs> no, uh, you look like you're sixteen. And I I said I am sixteen. She goes, Yeah, that's the point. <laughs> um, so yeah, that 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 was me. I was a horrible little rude boy. Or I was. Uh, hanging around with my mates, throwing petrol bombs, and I had a marker pen on me at all times, drawing oh, little, like, like tagging, basically. Terrible. Tagging in, in alleyways yes. and back doors and stuff like that, yeah. Oh. oh well, for me, I was, uh, I just started second year of school, and this, I think this is the pinnacle of my chart interest, because every Tuesday dinner time, me and my mates, Jovo, Gooch, and Gourmet Dorne, we, on dinner times, we'd go to the chip van, uh, in the shopping precinct, and then round about twenty to one, we got to save it, which was the local tat shop, which got that name because the bloke who ran the shop, when he opened it up in the mid seventies, it got like thousands of bags with the save it logo on it. You know the the energy saving campaign the government had on at the time, um, and we we go in there, we buy a can of Saudi Arabian cola. And uh, we camp out by the radio, which was in the corner of the shop, to listen to the new top four. Uh, and then we go, we just go back and tell everybody who, who was in the charts. And if we saw someone who was wearing a jam badge or something, we say, "Oh, you know, they're straight in at number three or something." Um, and I'd, I'd also walk about the estate at night with um, the first personal stereo I had, which I borrowed off my mate, and it was like a car battery on a strap. Uh, it was I had one absolute, of them. Yeah, it was massive. It was like Metal Mickey's handbag, wasn't it? And of, and of course, the, the I, only I, tape... I actually won mine. Did I, you? I, I, I won mine in a competition at school because we had to do a charity fundraising thing where um, <laughs> the first prize was one of those massive tape recorders that you've just described. And what we had to do was mm. uh, go all around Barry, knocking on doors, uh, getting sponsorship and so on for some, I don't know, sponsored run or sponsored walk or whatever. And uh, I, I went and... I. I, ra- I was so determined to win this thing. I raised about 500 quid, and obviously I, mm. I won the tape recorder by a mile. No one else in the school was even asked. I think the second <laughs> second place raised about a fiver. <laughs> and I was a bit oh, embarrassed man. by how much effort I put in to win this thing. And I used to cycle <laughs> around town with this thing strapped around my shoulder, listening <laughs> listening to, like, you know, yeah. I Just Can't Stop It by the beat or whatever. Oh, but I mean, the, the, the one tape I had uh, was Dare by the Human League, which I think was the law at the time. And it was really weird because I was still a massive jam head. And I'm listening to Dare going, oh, I shouldn't like this. I'm not allowed to like this, but it's so fucking good. And, uh, you know, just as well it was a personal stereo because I didn't want people to know I was listening to, you know, the Human League. And also at the time, my mate uh, got started working on a paper round and he'd slipped me copies of uh, The Enemy and Melody Maker and Sounds every week. So I was, you know, I mixed that into my diet along with Smash Hits and Record Mirror. So, yeah, I was I was properly genned up. 
It's funny you mention that thing about not being allowed or not thinking you're allowed to like certain bands. Mm. Um, because um, without wanting to bring too much of a somber note into uh, this, um, an old mate of mine from that era um, died recently. Uh, big shout out to Dave Jennings mm. and his family. Um, and uh, he was a kid who lived on my street and he just did not give a fuck. He, uh, he wore Harrington and, and wore Jam and Madness badges like, like me. In fact, he once got beaten up in front of me at Barry Island for not deciding whether he was a rude boy or a mod. But he oh, also... Yeah. yeah, he also... Um, he bought records by Gary Newman, Soft Cell, The Human League, Depeche Mode, Duran Duran, all that stuff which oh, in my man. town was considered girls' music or, or worse than that, gays' music. Mm. Yes. And... Uh, um, and because he did it, I felt like I had permission to do it. So even though, yeah, like I say, right. I was uh, a little rude boy, um, I I would also buy Dog Eat Dog um, by Adam Yance, or yeah. I'd, I'd buy, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, Say Hello, Wave Goodbye by Soft Cell or, or whatever whatever it may be. And um, But, yeah, there, there was this kind of almost kind of omerta about it. You, you felt like, right, I'm not going to tell anyone that I bought that. But um, yeah. but I think I think Dare that you just mentioned might, might have... Uh, been a bit of a that a bit of a breakthrough because everyone loved that album and yeah this is yeah. this is one of the planks in my argument for 1981 being so great i did a thing once where i i figured out if you had a record token at the end of 1981 for christmas what albums mm. could you go out and buy and it was insane i mean yeah dare was one of them non-stop erotic cabaret by soft cell was another tin drum by yeah. japan i can't remember they, they were just like within a space of about six weeks about 20 classic albums just came out and you know, it's just phenomenal. Yeah. And the other thing I remember about this month that we're talking about is that I'd just gone back to school, and when we left, when we finished the uh, the, the first year um, in what was it June or July or whatever, practically everyone was a mod. And then when I came back, it, it was almost like I was the last one. Um, everyone else was a was a grab. There was, there was, no one was really into futurism or new romantics at the time. But I remember this girl I really fancied, and I came back to school and she had a, like a bag and she had a massive ACDC patch on it, and I just went, "What? <laughs> you, you fucking Jezebel! How dare you!" But everyone just switched, and and you know, it, they, they didn't become new romantics; they became grubs. And I in, just my, thought, in my school, I, I metalists were the losers. That. that you know, being into metal was embarrassing. Uh, you know, yeah. there there weren't many metalers, and they were like they were a sorry bunch. They they were seen as the real dregs. Um, well, a know. lot of the kids from my school who were, who were into heavy metal were always from the posh estate across on the other side of the school, and they had neatly pressed uh, neatly pressed denim jackets. So yeah. My best mate, oh, the one who came to me, me for the Knickerbocker Glory in Cardiff on my birthday, was a metler. So when I used to go around his house and play Sabutio, I would be subjected <laughs> to Saxon and Judas oh, Priest and Motorhead mate. and, you know, uh, and all, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, even though I didn't like it much at the time, I, I kind of, by osmosis, sort of, some of it seeped in, into my soul, I think. And, and yeah. I, I do kind of look back yeah. and I, I do love the Nwobahum, or whatever, however you pronounce it. Yes. <laughs> Anything you want to add to this, Taylor? Um, I wish I had more stories of me in September 1981, but I was nine. Yeah. And it's, do oh. you know what I mean? You don't really do anything when you're nine. You just, you sort of, you're starting to notice cocks and balls drawn on the wall and mm. uh, everything else is happening inside your own head. And it's like trying to tell <laughs> other people about your dreams, you know. You can't do it and it's no one cares. <laughs> 
So what else was on telly this day? Well, BBC One has shown Blue Peter, Willow the Wisp, Nationwide and Tomorrow's World. Four days later after this day, an episode of Blue Peter featured Simon Groom and Peter Duncan doing some heavy-duty legend of Tina Heath and Maggie Philbin in corsets while Goldie licks her bits. I only saw this the other day. I was shocked and appalled that this was on children's television in 1981. It is, yeah. And it's like... Sorry, did you say who, who's Goldie licking? Goldie was licking his uh, her bits. The dog. Yeah. So Simon Group's retriever. It's not the drummer bass artist from the Metalheads. No. <laughs> it is terrible. It's like just the the sort of the the frozen smile on Sarah Green and Tina Heath's face as Peter Duncan steps forward with his instamatic. To, to yeah, it was it was Maggie Philbin. Was it Maggie Philbin? No, Tina yeah, Heath's there as well. Isn't yes. She? Yeah. Yes. And Isle of St. Clair. It's as if they tried to think, who are, who are the, the... Oh, God, yeah, Isle of St. Clair was on there as well. That's terrible. Trying to think, who, are, who are the least provocative, um, yeah. sort of least sexual <laughs> uh, people that we could dress in underwear for children? Um, but this look on their faces as Peter Duncan's taking pictures of them. Oh, it's no. like, you're, you're not going to put this on the internet, are you? No. It's really. I was a bit too old for Blue Peter upsetting. by this point. So I, I never saw this. I, mm. But from the description, I need to go and find this. It sounds really grim. You really you really do. But we're, we're only 19 years away from Maggie Philbin's ex-husband getting his cock out on television. <laughs> BBC Two has just screened an episode of School's Prom featuring the Surrey County Wind Orchestra, the Southampton Flute Quartet and the Doncaster Jazz Orchestra and they're currently showing Crown Green Bowling. (laughs) ITV has just finished the latest episode of Crossroads where Arthur Brownlow tells his wife that he's going to the pub for half an hour. Seriously, that's the plot. Followed by Give Us a Clue. They're now running Earthquake, the 1974 disaster movie with Charlton Heston and Ava Gardner that had a sense-around sound system in the cinema that was so powerful it made ceilings crack. So, yeah, not a lot of competition. Taylor, yeah. you, you know you were growing up in the Midlands, right, around this time. Yeah. So, I mean, Crossroads, was that... Did that have... Did you have some some kind of regional pride about it? And did it seem like a kind of fly-on-the-wall documentary? <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, we- we couldn't afford uh, bricks, <laughs> but no, it was it was the everyone felt the same way about Crossroads as the rest of the country did. There was no yeah. sort of Coronation Street or Brookside civic pride about it. It was a bit no. of an embarrassment, really. Mm. And it's West Midlands, so it's no to do with me. Ah, oh, fair enough. You're all the same to me. Well, the Midlands <laughs> in the in those days was like Berlin. It was like you, east and west. You, you, there was no need to to travel from one to the other. It wasn't really the done thing, you know. No no reason to go to Nottingham. <laughs> that was the only reason it was like Berlin, let me tell you. <laughs> you know, David Bowie didn't think of recording uh, any albums in Darbe. <laughs> in Cannock. <laughs> 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 Although it might, might have improved uh, one or two of them. Well, I remember my dad uh, was a removal man and he had to go to Birmingham to some student area, which was near the ATV studios, and he came back absolutely gobsmacked uh, and and told me that every window around the ATV studios had po- handmade posters up saying, Benny is innocent. <laughs> it was a, it was the time when Benny got was, was on a murder charge or something like that. 
probably wasn't murder. It was probably just you know a lawnmower went missing or something, and he was he was um, he, he was under suspicion of it. But yeah, that's that's the only crossroads thing I can I can add to the to the tale. So was Goldie a bitch? Apparently so. I always remember I always remember Goldie as being a a, a man dog. Nah. No. Oh, that's really that's horrible to that's like my whole No, I think think Goldie Horn out of the sixties, not Goldie the drum and bass artist out of the nineties. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but this is So now now this is... now you're picturing a woman from Rowan and Martin's laughing doing some kind of contortionism and performing yeah, some I'm kind of auto kind of <laughs> I picture that more often than I really should. <laughs> but have I have I misremembered my entire childhood? It's like the um, Yeah. <laughs> this is <laughs> right then, sit tight and try not to touch anything as we go all the way back to September the 24th, 1981. Remember, we may end up coating down some of your favourite bands and artists of the era, but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have. <laughs> Our host for the evening is Simon Bates, but let's just call him Symes. <laughs> Symes was born in Birmingham just after the war, but his parents craved the simple life and they all moved to Shropshire. Well, it goes without saying that even idyllic childhoods don't last forever, and before he knew it, Symes found himself at university. But maybe he didn't feel cut out for life on campus, or you could say he just didn't fit in, so he dropped out and in what you might call a moment of madness, took the first job he could find on a farm as an assistant artificial inseminator. <laughs> Wanking off bulls, <laughs> sucking off turkeys through a straw, ramming his hands up a sheep's fanner. It was all the same to him. But all of a sudden, you could say he had a moment of clarity and said to himself, hey, this isn't me. So he sucked off his last turkey handed in his notice and went off to New Zealand, playing a cockney cab driver in a radio play and working in Australia on assorted stations. But he soon came home and in 1971 he met the love of his life. Let's just call her the BBC. <laughs> he started as a newsreader for Radio 4, which was great, but he wanted a deeper commitment. So he found himself spending some late nights with Radio 2 in 1973 and in 1976, he took the plunge and shacked up with Radio 1, taking over the mid-morning programme in 1977, where he still was when this episode of Top of the Pops came out. But I guess you could say it wasn't all wine and roses for Symes. Maybe it was because he felt that he was something more than a disc jockey and had journalistic pretensions. Maybe it had something to do with the fact that he would blow the Radio 1 budget on broadcasting all around the world. But he was seen as the most unpopular DJ at Radio 1 at the time, to the point where John Peel once said that the first thing people did at the Radio 1 Christmas party was to look at the seating arrangement to find out how close they'd have to sit next to Simon Bates, with general rejoicing if it was suitably far away. One Christmas it went so far that John Peel, Kid Jensen and Paul Burnett decided to wait in the BBC car park to beat him up, but he never appeared. I guess you could say that Symes is best known for our tune, 
the segment where he'd read out a letter about someone having a shit life, and then play I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. The segment was so popular that John Peel said, I was always given to understand that when Bates launched into our tune, it was when the station had its biggest audience of the day. At 11 o'clock in the morning, every lay-by on every major road in Britain was full of weeping truck drivers. So, Simon Bates. <laughs> the first question we have to ask is why the fuck is Simon Bates presenting Top of the Pops in 1981? Because all must have prizes. They used to get John <laughs> Peel on, for Christ's sake. You know what I mean? It, it, at least Bates was uh, at least Bates was popular with the general <laughs> public. You know what I mean? It's I mean it's terrible. It does seem ridiculous, but in a way, it's better that he seems so absurdly out of place hosting a pop program than all those all those ones who obviously it was their life's ambition to be a DJ. You know, mm. or failing that at Butlin's red coat, I'd rather <laughs> I'd rather have uh, Bates just there like this kind of uh, sort of granite uh, mistake. He always comes off to me looking like some kind of I don't know substitute teacher who's taking a load of kids out to an art gallery for the day. Yeah, but one you wouldn't fuck with. I mean, this idea that as as you just uh, referred to there, this uh, story about uh, it was it John Peel. Kid Jensen, Paul and, Burnett, and, uh, right, waiting around in the car park to beat him up. Yeah, right. I just got this image of Bates with John Peel in one hand, Paul Burnett in the <laughs> other, uh, banging them together, and Kid Jensen <laughs> under one foot. You know, before he before he goes off to scale the Empire State Building and and pluck biplanes out of the sky. Um, he's a monster, but. Um, yeah, it's it, there'll never be another. I hate Simon Bates. I hate Simon Bates oh. more than I hate Jimmy Savile. But you like everything, I Simon. I hate Simon Bates more than I hate Jimmy Savile. And I'm Whoa. yeah, all right. I'm saying, I'm saying that. I'm saying that in the way you remember uh, Richie from the Manic said that you know we'll always hate slow dive more than we hate Hitler. I'm saying it in that way. Right. Obviously, I don't think <laughs> okay. Simon Bates was a worse man than Jimmy Savile. But I hate him more, right? Because he got in my face. In the school holidays, right, you'd, you'd wake up, uh, you'd switch on, it'd be Mike Reed and The Breakfast Show. I'd just leave Radio 1 on all day, and more yeah. or less I'd get along with most of it. Mm. Um, so, you know, then you'd have Simon Bates, and then you'd have Woo Gary Davis, you'd have Steve Wright in the afternoon, you'd have, like, Janice Long or whoever, maybe John Peel. Um, but out of all of them, Simon Bates is the one. It just really dragged, and I wondered who it, who it was for. Who were his constituency? I mean, you mentioned, like, wanking lorry drivers, weeping lorry drivers, sorry. No, yeah, and, um, wanking why, lorry drivers. Why, why wasn't he on BBC Radio 2? What was he even doing on Radio 1? Um, oh, Simon, I've got an image Pops, now of um, lorry drivers masturbating over our tune. Oh, oh, go away. Like, that's the first time you've thought of that. <laughs> um, look, right, of all, of all the Top of the Pops presenters, Simon Bates is the one who looks like he shouldn't be around young people, right? right. Not in a sexual way, not that he's a, a danger to young people, mm. but that he isn't even of the same species. He has never yes. been young. Yes, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, I, I mean, obviously, Simon, is is housewife's choice, isn't it? And you, you're right. What you, you what you're saying? You assume that when you leave Radio One to go to school, it's going to be 
like that all through the day. And then, you know, when you get to your summer holidays, it's like, what's this shit? Why are you playing? First of all, you've got an hour of old stuff and then you've got misery. And it's like, uh, yeah. yeah that, what, what does that mean to you when you're uh, when you're a youth? I'm slightly intrigued by his weird plywood gravitas. It's there's something. <laughs> he, what he's like, he's like what the vo- voice of God would be like if the universe of the TV program Doctors was real life. <laughs> I love the phrase plywood gravitas there, but it's plywood with a sort of dark mahogany veneer, isn't it? Yeah, a, a plastic stick on uh, a brick pattern. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea that someone like him is is presenting top of the pops at, at, at one of its peaks is 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 bizarre to me. Every time he comes on a top of the pops, I just think out of anybody else, why are you yeah. there? Even Savile. You know, Jimmy Savile's, you know, when he's on top of the pops round about this time, he's seriously knocking on a bit. But you still think, oh, OK, well, he's Mr. Top of the Pops, so that's fair enough. But Simon Bates, it's just like, no, you've, you've wandered into the wrong studio, mate. Yeah. Or he's, he's arrived late for Nationwide <laughs> or something. Because, of course, at this time, at this time, he's he's done his own chat show on uh, Pebble Moor, hasn't he, Taylor? Who has? Sa- he did a he did a chat show for um, BBC Midlands called Saturday Live, I think. What Simon Bates? Yes, he did. Yeah, and it and it died on its ass. It was pulled yeah. very quickly. Yeah, it was. It, there's there's very little of it about it on YouTube. I well, there's none of it on YouTube. He grasped for the Parkinson ring and and came up short. <laughs> Five minutes away from Britain's number one. Welcome to Top of the Pops with a good loud start from Slade. Right over here. Simon Bates in a cream jacket with open-necked check shirt is standing in quarantine at the back of the set with no one around him as he informs us that the number one single is 35 minutes away and then introduces Slade. Formed in Wolverhampton in 1966 as the In-Betweens and then Ambrose Slade, Slade racked up six number ones and 18 top 40 hits in a five-year period, establishing themselves as the dominant British band of the early 70s. In 1975, they decided to permanently decamp to the USA in an attempt to break America, which failed. And by the time they returned in 1977, they were all but forgotten. But in 1980, when they were on the verge of splitting up, Ozzy Osbourne cancelled his appearance at the Reading Festival and Slade were drafted in at the last minute to play what was going to be their farewell gig. But they became the stars of the festival and went on to adopt a more hard rock stance. They returned to the charts in April of this year with Will Bring the House Down, which got to number 10. The follow-up, Wheels Aren't Coming Down, only got to number 60, but Lock Up Your Daughters is currently at 45 good enough to put them back on top of the pops. Chaps, how do we feel about bands from our childhood having another go around? I'll tell you what, right? Um, This is a weird thing, that in 1981, uh, Slade would have sounded and seemed like a nostalgia act. And that that is so odd, and that tells us something about the telescoping of time and the effect of the internet. Because the internet means that nothing is really in the past anymore. We live in this kind of perpetual, ongoing present tense. But in you know in the 70s and 80s records got deleted you know um you if it, you you couldn't buy a slade record if mm. you wanted to uh uh not one of their hits unless you found it in a charity shop or maybe you'd you know 
find their greatest hits somewhere. But basically, they were done with. They were not written yeah. out of history, but they were written out of the present. They weren't part of the present. Um, and yeah, them coming back, so only seven years yeah. really from their heyday, um, would have. It, it did seem like a real yeah. throwback. Um, whereas, you know, to give an equivalent from now, it would be like feeling that way about. I don't know, scouting for girls or wombats or something, having a hit now, you know, you just shrug and think, oh, all right, you know, you know, they're, they're still kind of a thing. They're still knocking around. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, but in, in those got a big days, enough fan base. In, uh, because there was no internet, the past receded from view far more quickly. Um, and so Slade were just a kind of folk memory. Mm. And I, I think that's kind of an interesting thing about this. And you can see how much Simon Bates is relishing um, starting the show with something he understands. You know, from from that earlier era. Yeah, because we I mean we we spoke um, a couple of episodes ago about the uh, in 1975 and the um, the Mallory Park Bay City Rollers Radio One Fun Day and and there's um, John Peel wrote about that and he said uh, you know Noddy Holder was there uh, giving an interview. And uh, he, he said that after he'd given his interview, he walked across a bridge and, like, hundreds and hundreds of Bay City Roller fans just ran through him um, to get to the Rollers. And, you know, not one of them noticed him. And, you know... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Noddy Holden must have thought, well, we're fucked now. You talk about civic pride. This was uh, Slade. Yeah, oh, yes. <laughs> but, I don't know, this is, you know, lock up your daughters. I mean, I know they've been spending all that time on <laughs> Sunset Strip with that less than salubrious Rodney, you know, and all those children. Those Bingheimer, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, there's something a bit distant. I, mean, <clears throat> I mean, this is that agonised moment in early middle age just before bargaining with life begins, right? Like, Slade were a bit... <laughs> Uh, like like almost all of the early 70s pop stars, Slade were a bit older than pop stars usually are because they were late developers from yeah. the 60s, like almost everyone from that time. So here they'll be, what, 35, 36? Not right. old as 35. That's kind of, yeah. I mean, they look much older, of course, but and in one sense it doesn't matter because yeah. they never appeared youthful. But you can still... You can still smell that kind of edgy, giddy hysteria because uh, it's that point in life where you know that your youth um, is coming to an end soon. They know their career is coming to an end mm. soon, but they're not quite thinking yeah. about it just yet. So there's a sort of a hyperactive yeah. um, energy and sexuality about them that is a bit... A bit tragic, um, especially when you look at Noddy. He's got like a sort of a, almost like a sports jacket, faded jeans, and cowboy boots. It's the timeless uniform of the of the early middle aged horn dog, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's not the worst record in the world. Although it is just the riff from Satisfaction in it. Just you don't notice it because they've buried. Mm. I thought it's the same tune basically as a. Uh, Fool for Your Loving by White Snake, you know that. Oh, that's the basic. Yes, that's the tune Good going call. on. But um, lock up, lock up your daughters. Um, anticipates the Shannon Matthews story by about three decades, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> but um, what Taylor said about um, that that kind of uh, uh, 
denial of the onset of middle age. Do you notice that Super Yob, um, Dave Hill, in, in this clip, he, yes. he has given in to the uh, inexorable crawl of male pattern baldness, and and he's replaced his his bizarre yes. comb forward with with a cowboy hat here, which which I I, I think is a shame. Yeah. I think he should have kept it going until his fringe was swept forward from the back of his neck. Yeah, well, in 1977-78, he actually shaved it or bald. Oh, right. He was bold for a while, yeah. And he might well still be under that hat. Did you notice, um, also, in this clip, you get this weird pre-intro bit before Simon Bates has even introduced them, where Noddy yeah. gets to shout, lock up your daughters, in much the same way as he shouted, baby, 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 in the previous decade. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting little twist on Top of the Pops there. I wonder if they were just allowed to do that because they're kind of Top of the Pops royalty. They're these kind of returning grandees, you know? Mm. No, no, they've got, they've got a fancy boots director in because they do something similar later on with uh, Heaven 17. By the way, do you think uh, that the long dark hair that we see at the side of Dave Hill's head is attached to the hat? <laughs> <laughs> or is it like one of those um, Captain Jack Sparrow fancy dress costumes where it's all attached to a sort of bandana? Uh, yeah. Uh. You know, um, you, you mentioned that they turned into a hard rock band, a kind of no-nonsense hard rock band. Well, um, mm. and you mentioned We'll Bring the House Down. I think We'll Bring the House Down was actually a decent effort in that genre. Um, and also partly mm. because it had that other Slade element. It had a football terrace chant yeah. going on, We'll Bring the House Down, you know. Like, Whoa. That's right, yeah. But this one just hasn't got yeah. that, has it? You know, um, it's just kind of nothing. Did no. it? I mean, you'll know. You're the man with the stats. Did it even break the top 40 afterwards, this? Well, we'll, we'll find out later on, Simon, shall we? Oh, keep the, you tease. You know, keep tease. the suspense. <laughs> but, I mean, Dave Hill's the only one who's making any kind of concession to um, bothering to, to, to make an effort on the uh, on the close front. He's got this kind of Lemmy-esque leather sort of hat with all the studs. He's got all the studs going on. Um, and, and also the lyrical content of the song, it does remind me of a, of a kind of like a school reunion drink up uh, that you know is going to go badly wrong. Someone's going to burst into tears about a divorce at some point. Someone's going to hit somebody else over something that happened 25 years ago. It, 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 you know it's not going to end well. <laughs> um, but of course, Lady Rabanda are in the mid-30s, but they would have seemed impossibly old at the time. But your heavy metal fan is going to be a lot more forgiving of a of an older band, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, good point. I was going to say, isn't he? Uh, because, you know, it's, it's an, it was an exclusively male thing at the time. But the other thing we have to mention is, that, you know, this could be one of the first sightings on Top of the Pops of headbanging, because there's a bit of headbanging down the front, isn't there? Did anybody partake in headbanging at any, any point? No. <laughs> no. No, me neither. <laughs> me neither. It was the dangerous no. youth trend of the time, wasn't it? It sort of came after clackers and before spinning on your head and, and on a par with um, throwing petrol bombs in South Wales and chasing each other with burning crosses. Yeah, there are all these um, scare stories that it was the equivalent of, you know, being a boxer and getting your head punched all the time or, yes. you know, what we now know about um, central defenders in the 70s having to head very wet leather footballs and, you know, that kind of right, repetitive yes. damage it does does to your brain. That Yeah, if you were leaning over um, the balcony of, I don't know, Bristol Colston Hall shaking your hair around to Whitesnake, that it might uh, mm. make you into a bit of an idiot in later life <laughs> as opposed to yeah. make you an idiot right then. You know? <laughs> the following week, the song only moved up two places, but it eventually got to number 27 its highest position 
The next two releases failed to chart, but My Oh My was the Christmas number two in 1983, and they'd have one more top 10 hit with Run Run Away in March of 1984. Or even your grandparents, maybe, about Nat King Cole, and they'll tell you he had a great hit called Pretend. So did Alvin Stardust in 1981. It goes like this. Bates is surrounded by four young ladies with his arm round one of them as he points out that the following song is dead old. Why, it's Alvin Stardust. Like Slade, Alvin Stardust's chart career died in 1975 when Sweet Cheating Rita got to number 37 and he ended up in the Will Tappers and Shunters wilderness. However, in 1981, his manager was approached by Pete Waterman, who suggests that Alvin record the 1953 song Pretend, which was initially a hit for Nat King Cole and released as a rockabilly single by Billy Mann in 1959. After the recording was turned down by loads of record labels, his first single release in four years was picked up by Stiff records and it's gone up this week from number eight to number five well first of all right you've got in the intro you've got simon bates with these two girls clapping each other's hands yes. across his crotch which is kind of really yes. weird it's, it's got it's got that kind of innocence of that those kind of hand clapping games that girls play in the playground yes but across this kind of partridge-esque man's groin <laughs> It's, it's really kind of quite unsettling. And then, you know, it's in a way, it's the perfect intro for somebody like Alvin Stardust. At least it would have been for his 1970s self. Um, mm. But and, and by the way, it, it is weird that, you know, this is the year of capital F futurism that we're talking about. And the first yes. two acts are Alvin Stardust and Slade. Yeah, your 1981 hasn't started yet, has it, Simon? Uh, no, not on this episode anyway. But you, do you notice there's a bit uh, midway through this clip where... He points his hand down the camera, just like my Kukachu. So it's kind of like it's his his sort of visual greatest hit is doing yes. that waggling thing with his finger. But no latex glove this time, so no deal really. He, he appears absolutely naked without his gloves on. <laughs> it just doesn't seem right to see Alvin Stardust bare hands. He's gone from being one of the most sexually menacing pop stars in Britain to a man with all the dark sexuality of Michael Gove or something. You know, um, and also, do you notice when he's playing the guitar or miming the guitar, for a lot of the song, he looks like he doesn't know what he's doing with his fingers. But then suddenly there's a guitar solo and apparently he does and he's properly shredding it. I find that a bit weird. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Well, the last time the three of us were gathered here, we were watching out, and it's it's a, yeah. a different picture. Look, what a thought! Thank you for that. It's, image. it's only been eight years. That's the thing. Only eight years. I've got shoes that are eight. I've had for eight years. You know, it, and in fairness, he's weathered well, considering that he was quite old in 1973. Um, he must be what in his forties here. Must be forty or so. He looks all right. He looks all right for it. And at least he's not trying to be up to date. He's gone back to being Shane Fenton, his original um, pop incarnation, isn't he? The 60s pop star. But it is still a sort of saga holidays, uh, sale of the century yes. simulacrum. For 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 rock and roll's um, first generation of old folks. Yes. Right? This is who this record's for. People who were around in sort of 1955, <laughs> you know. Um who would then probably have been 
uh, younger than we are today. But in cultural terms, but in cultural terms, they were retired and just sitting around waiting for death. You know. Yeah, it, lo- it looks a bit like Kevin Keegan's dad, doesn't it? <laughs> He's got a, he's got a bit a tiny little bit of a of a hint towards a perm with his with his hairstyle. Bit of a love joy, a pre love joy. Yes, definitely a love joy. Yes, I've got a certain fondness for this song because my dad used to sing it over the sink in the morning while he was fleming up. So uh, <laughs> he he used to sing this and singing the blues, the the, the Tommy Steele uh, version. So, yeah, you know, I've got... See, the washing up is the perfect scenario for yes. a latex glove. If your dad had had the latex gloves and yeah. was singing Alvin Stardust while doing the washing up, that would have been so perfect. Oh, he wasn't washing up. He was he was um, defleming himself after a night of drinking bitter oh, and dues. smoking 20-pog drives. Also, you notice that the audience... like We had this problem on, I think it was the Vance and Daltrey episode. The audience won't shut up. They're just babbling and jabbering. And they've left the audience mics up high for a bit of atmosphere. And all it does, it's like a big fuck-off to the performer, you know. Yeah, Um, it's not fair, is it? No, they're just... And it's like, I just... You just want Alvin to just sort of lose it. And just yes. get, take that that lovely yeah. Just grab one of them and say you must be out of your time. <laughs> yeah, get, get that get that lovely Gibson ES one seven five or whatever it is he's strumming away out. Just smash it over somebody's yes. head. You know, yeah. ju- judge, jury, and execution. Yes, very yeah. good. No. <laughs> but no, it's 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 the worst thing about this period of top of the pops. The the single worst thing, worse than the mm. professional dancers, worse than the just that jabber. Just shut up. Yeah, which weirdly is what gigs are like nowadays. Yeah. yeah. So pretend would nudge up one place to number four, its highest position. The follow-up, a cover of Pat Boone's "A Wonderful Time Up There," only made it to number fifty-six. B signed for Chrysalis in nineteen eighty-four and would have two more top ten hits. Simon Bates makes his first mistake of the night when he announces that this band's previous song was True Life. It's Depeche Mode. Formed in Basildon in 1980 from the ashes of No Romance in China and Norman and the Worms, Depeche Mode, named after a French fashion magazine, appeared in the Some Bizarre compilation album with The The and Soft Cell before signing with Mute Records before the year was out. Their first release, Dreaming of Me, got to number 57 in April of 1980, but the follow-up New Life got to number 11 in August. I Just Can't Get Enough was Rush released the next month and it's crashed into the top 40 at number 24 from number 44. Three synths, a reel-to-reel tape, a gong, and four plastic trumpets. Here we are, Simon. Here's the the glittery edifice of 1981 for you. Yeah, first of all, um, sorry to be anal about this, but let's look in some detail at what Simon Bates said there. Yes, Because there are actually three things wrong with what he said. He said, right, and I quote, he says, it seems like only yesterday since True Life came out, Depeche mode, right? Yes. So... First of all, it makes no grammatical sense. It seems like only yesterday since, right? That's That makes sense. Mm-hmm. True Life You Put It Out is not the name of, of the song. Um, 
and Depeche Mode. This was rife in the early 80s. Everyone getting it wrong. Yeah. Shades, shades of Blackburn with his Duran Duran thing on the, uh, yes. on, on the, yes. on the top 40 countdown. So there's that. So, you know... Simon, uh, is, is Depeche Mode, is that the B-bomb of the early 80s? It is the B-bomb of the early 80s, yeah. Um, although I think there's some kind of dispute over this. Apparently, they muddied the waters themselves by um, doing certain interviews where they said it was Depeche Mode. So... Maybe I should go a bit easy on, you know, some of these Radio 1 guys. Yeah, I was going to say, also, shouldn't it... I don't... You see, I only got A-level French, but shouldn't it actually be Depeche Mod? Well, well, it should be Mod Depeche, because, you know, in French, generally speaking, you put the adjective after the noun. Um, So, in, in all kinds of ways, it's... If they got it from a fashion mag, presumably they saw it written in that order. For some mm. reason. See, if they'd call themselves Woman's Own or The People's <laughs> Friend, they wouldn't have had this problem, would they? Woman's Own is a great name for a band. It actually is, yeah. <laughs> Exchange and Mart. There's a great name for a band. <laughs> yeah, for a synth duo. <laughs> yeah, and we've basically gone from Simon Bates' comfort zone, which is Slade and Alvin Stardust, to the future. You know, this is proper futurism. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned the reel-to-reel tape. That was quite a kind of totemic thing of synth bands of that period so that you had the human yeah. league omd and depeche depeche mode using them um and they were just there as kind of set decoration but they were there to make a point weren't they that um mm. it, it was almost a snub to the musicians union who tried to ban um you know th- these kind of artists because it wasn't real music um so it's yeah. basically sort of shoving that in the face of the mu saying yeah this is pre-recorded um Mm. And th- th- there was this kind of um, subversion to that, which goes through the whole performance. You've got them playing toy trumpets as well. Um, That's when, right. When clearly, yes. there are no trumpets on the record. Um, yeah. And, and that that kind of um, subversion runs through quite a few. Um, the the Human League, and I mentioned OMD as well. Do you remember there's there's a performance by the Associates where um, uh, Alan Rankin is playing a chocolate guitar, and then in the second verse, he yes. just he breaks it into pieces and starts feeding it to the audience. So quite quite a few <laughs> of these synth bands like to do that, just to kind of take the piss out of the whole thing. Um, I, mm. I I really like Depeche Mode, but I don't love them, and I I find it weird when people do love them. Yeah. I, I got friends who are Depeche Mode mental. Uh, I also find yeah. it weird that anyone could hate Depeche Mode. I just think that they're a band that you've got to respect. They've just made so many really good records, but while stopping short of quite quite loving them but this is a brilliant song this is just a, a classic pop song um so you know i i don't think anyone can can really argue this is just a perfect pop song um if you put mm. this on in a club when you're djing it just cheers everyone up um there, there was something because they they eventually became this kind of sleazy dark electro band and i know that yeah. um I, i've interviewed mark almond a few times and and he reckons that soft cell imploding kind of paved the way for Depeche Mode to take on that mantle and then become this kind of right. stadium electro goth monster that they became but at this point they're very clean cut aren't they like Dave Garn is is uh, he's got this little bow tie looks about 12 yeah and he looks he looks at he's, he's a sort of like synth pop singer you could take home to your mum he looks a bit like Ducky mm. in Pretty in Pink which hadn't been made yet um, yes but then you've got um, uh, Martin Gore who's who's uh, uh, he's he's yes. topless in braces and a trilby, like a uh, sort of gay dancer from a from a New York club, like a kind of stonewall it was, situation. Uh, play havoc and, with your nipples, that would. Yeah, oh, too right. Yeah, and uh, as as I as I knew only too well from my sort of madness Fred Perry kind of look. Um, but he's he's singing at Vince Clark, kind of 
dancing at him and Vince Clark's not quite having it and I wonder if that might have precipitated his departure from the band but uh, Martin, yes. Martin Gore was gaying him up just a little bit oh, too much for, for Vince his Vince Clark looks proper Hitler youth in this doesn't he? Yeah, he does. But I, I, I love Vince Clark. I think, I think he's a pop genius, and his fingerprints are all over this song. And you know, basically, when yeah. he left the band, it was, it was a last. That, that's another reason why they, they took that more somber turn. Yes, and it's also just going back to that musicians' union point. It, it's kind of hard to remember this distance uh, in 1981. Still, how controversial it was not to have a drummer or a guitarist visible on stage. Mm. I know you mentioned this kind of thing when you were talking about Ultravox the other week, uh, but Ultravox kind of, mm. they, they had a foot in both camps because they did have, you know, um, uh, a, a, was it a real drummer they had in the band? Um, there was, you know, at least there was something kind of to root it down and make it seem kind of, yeah. whereas the mode, uh, they're just totally in your face with how synthetic in both uh, meanings of the word they were. And, and I absolutely love it. Yeah, this is almost like the archetypal new pop single, isn't it? It's like it's mm. brisk and artificial and bright and droll and slightly faster than it needs to be, but still mm. rooted in classic pop rules. Um, mm. There's nothing wrong with this at all. I mean, it's funny to look at, uh, you know, this is a group that haven't taken heroin. You, you just you <laughs> take one look at them and you can see, you know, even like Martin Gore is like looks like he's failed an audition for the hot shoe show. It's <laughs> but it's not it's not really sleazy, is it? It's just he's like he's just having a little dress up. Um but no, this is good. It's the the only uh, my problem with Depeche Mode came uh in the, the later years. I remember um mm. yes, reacting I still react with incredulity when people talk about Depeche Mode as though they were a you know, a classic band or one of the greats. I remember the lyric sheet to their album uh, Black Celebration being passed around at my school as comedy, right? <laughs> look at this, look at these <laughs> lyrics, because they were so bad. Because Martin Gore is one of the worst, well, I don't know about one of the worst lyricists, but one of the most classically bad lyricists of the 80s, mm. you know, like these, if you think bad lyrics, this is what you think, you know, very right. quotable doggerel, you know, um, but um, I'm not sure that they made a bad single until about 1988. So I just can't get enough would soar to number 12 and go as far as number eight. The debut LP Speak and Spell was released the following month and the follow-up See You would get to number six in March of 1982. Depeche Mode would have 42 top 40 hits between 1981 and 2009 but would never make the top three. Depeche Mode. And here's a gentleman called Dave Stewart who specialised in making oldies sound like something out of 1981. The lady with him is Barbara. And listen to what they do with It's My Party. Bates. 
on his own again introduces us to Dave Stewart, who specialises in taking oldies and making them sound out of 1981, but feels that Barbara Gaskin isn't worthy of a surname. <laughs> Barbara Gaskin was involved in the late 60s Canterbury scene and became the lead singer of Spyro Gyra, a folk prog band of the early 70s, not the jazz funk group of the late 70s, and guested with bands such as Egg, National Health and Hatfield and the North, and travelled around Japan and India when the band split up. When she returned to the UK, she hooked up with the keyboardist of Hatfield and the North and National Health, Dave Stewart, who had scored a number 13 hit earlier in the year with a synth cover of Jimmy Ruffin's What Becomes of the Broken Hearted. This song, a synthy cover of the 1963 Leslie Gore hit, has jumped up from number 17 to number 8. Dave Stewart is not Dave Stewart of the Tourists, later the Eurythmics. I only knew that last week. That shocked me. Well, you thought he was two-timing uh, Annie Lennox with uh, yes. Barbara. Yeah. Uh. I mean, Barbara Gaskin, she, the, the thing that struck me, first of all, was that she looks like Candice Marie in Nuts in May, <laughs> glammed up for a works to a vegan cooperative canteen. <laughs> One of the recurring themes of, of these podcasts is the whole thing about people ageing much more quickly in the past. And, I mean, mm. how old was she? Like 30 or something? I mean, God knows. Something but, like that, yeah. Yeah, but she's such a mum. Um, she looks like yes. she's... She looks like she's run through the wardrobe department from Playaway and and nicked yes. Chloe Ashcroft or Carol Chell's costume. Yes. And, um, and, and, and you know, there's this subtle generation gap between this and Depeche Mode. They're probably only about, you know, seven years apart in age, but... Mm. Uh, you know, and again, this is a synth performance, but Dave Stewart comes from an entirely different generation. He clearly came to yeah. synths through prog rather than through Kraftwerk. Mm. So, you know, yeah. he's all about Rick Wakeman rather than Ralph yeah. Hutter. Um, Taking three hours to set your moog up. Yeah, there, there's there's four musicians on stage. And at first I couldn't figure out which one of them is Stewart. But I think he's the one with a vest because he gets to have two keyboards on some sort of black and decker a-frame thing and 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 he waves his yes. arms around like a maestro and does a stage bow when it ends um and uh yeah he's got this shiny red bum bag it looks like on his hip uh uh like larry blackman from cameo's cod piece has slipped round to, to the side it, but he's got he's got one on either side i think uh, that was bothering me what they were I, well i wasn't sure the picture quality is not great um but i couldn't tell it is it a hair dryer mm. or boxing gloves is it boxing gloves i thought it was boxing gloves but i also think it could be some kind of percussion instrument ah right okay yeah with depeche mode you know totally artificial but it's a bit more natural with them. With, with this performance, it's like, oh, look at all my synths. Everything's synthy. Yeah. Oh, you know. I, I'd never heard the original when when this came out. Um, so I I, I did I didn't know the original. Um, and uh, in in retrospect, I, um, some some of the lines uh, allowed a sort of Finbar Saunders esque um, smirking. <laughs> no, nobody knows where my Johnny has gone. Oh, kind of... Yeah, look, let, let's get let's get to the heart of the matter here. I was yeah. nine years old, and this record came out. <laughs> the first line of which is, "Nobody knows where my Johnny has gone." <laughs> it was like the it was like you know they're with the the Bell Stars yeah. uh, clapping yeah. song was you had yeah. to you know it was like an innuendo it was like they didn't actually say rubber johnny mm. it just you, you you had to fill it in yourself whereas here they actually said yeah. it it, it reminds amazing. me of that scene in uh, in bed with chris needham 
where uh, Greg gets questioned about uh, who's got in Chris's top draw and got the Johnnies out, and they've decided that it's actually uh, his little brother who's used them as balloons. Yeah, <laughs> I did ask. I did ask Chris about that, and I, I did say, "Look, Chris, did you put that in to kind of like put about the fact that you were sexually active?" And he he refused to be drawn on the subject, so <laughs> I'm taking that as a yes. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing I was going to say about this is it's very kind of. Uh, Amdram, very theatrical and performative. You know, the way that Barbara Gaskin oh, yes. gives it the big shock eyes, the big kind of silent movie shock eyes, and that kind of hand and the, and the, the hand yes. the hand to forehead swooning that she does. Um I I, I don't yeah. think I liked it very much at the time. And I thought it was Oh, couldn't stand it. It's an odd record to be number one, really, because it's got these weird mm. noises in it. It's very discordant at times. It's got a tempo shift, a massive tempo shift near the end. So it's quite a peculiar thing to be mm. number one. And I, even though I was 14 and, you know, listened to Radio 1 all day, I, I couldn't figure out why this one's shot up the charts. What's going on there? And and by the way, um, a, a lot of this now, you know, it's the era we're dealing with, gives me such a Proustian rush. I used to cycle home from school every Tuesday lunchtime with a little chart diary that I got from my granddad's stationery shop. And um, I used to <laughs> fill in what was in the, what the new entries were, cycle back to school and read it out to my, um, uh, uh, you know, classmates who were kind of humouring me and probably didn't give a shit. But I was like, but, you know, uh, I was bringing them, bringing them breaking news like, like the guy who ran the original marathon in Greece or like Paul Revere or something. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I was yeah. giving it that. What news from Gallup? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or BRMB, as it might still have been at that time. Um, but uh, hearing this song, I can actually taste um, ke- uh, cheap ketchup on a particular chip shop's chips in my mouth when I hear it. It's, it's really powerful when, mm. when you hear this stuff. And, and yeah. it, it, bring, it does bring back tastes and smells and all kinds of stuff. This is grown-up synth pop, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, but in, the, in all the wrong ways. Because yes. what this is, uh, it's a bunch of old hippies trying to be as modern as they possibly can. And that's mm. never good news. It's they no. for a start. It's completely unsympathetic to uh, the actual song. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's a mess. This record is a mess. They've just mm. uh, troweled on all these modern textures and studio techniques with no thought to how that might affect the you know emotional push of the record because they've got no respect for the song because the song's kitsch no. right? inescapably kitsch like all this sort mm. of uh, immediately pre-Beatles or pre-Beatlemania pop songs tended to be um, yeah so but it's they don't even respect what the song's trying to do like after it says uh, she's wearing his ring there's like a sample of church bells that sort of goes ding dong dong yes it makes Shadow Morton look like a lateral thinker you know, it's, and then it, straight from that into a sort of chirpy coda of Pigeon Street reggae with her yes. doing a jolly little yes. primary school teacher dance. And it's like, this is not, this doesn't follow from the um, emotions laid down in the song. It's just wrong. Um, and the kitschness of the original is in the composition. It's in the song. Yes. It's not in the arrangement of the song. So when you mm. put on all these uh, Yamaha synths, it's just you're recladding a load of schlock. It's like doing yeah. it's like doing a Belgian house version of Tell Laura I Love Her. It's just it's just a waste <laughs> of resources. There's no point. First thing, first song that Quincy Jones produced, by the way, is it? Yes, I didn't. I should know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. And to me, it sounds like the midpoint between the 
albums of the late sixties and early seventies of oh here's Beethoven on Moog, <laughs> and the more recent thing of of taking an old song and playing it dead slow to try and wring out as much emotion out of it as possible. Yeah. But all that does all that does is make a really shit version of a song last two minutes longer than it should. <laughs> yeah, but it is. I don't mean it. It's like that classic rock by the London Philharmonic. It's like you liked it yeah. like that. Well, you'll <laughs> love yeah. it like this. So, well, <laughs> no, it's like also there's got all the signifiers of modernity, like one of those one of those drum kits that looks like the gold oh. run from Blockbusters. <laughs> yes, and yeah, the, yeah, EastEnders drums, as I call yeah, them. Yeah, it's all. Oh, it's just yeah. There's something really really miserable and point missing about this the following week it would jump up to number one and stay there for four weeks fucking hell all the synth pop tunes of that era that should have been number one and and this one was the follow-up busy doing nothing a cover of the bing crosby song stalled at number 49 but they would continue to work together to this day the only other bit of chart action they got was a cover of little eva's locomotion which only got to number 17 in the summer of 1986 a couple of years too early yeah and not fronted by an extremely popular soap star yes that's where they went wrong that's probably more more to do with why it was unsuccessful yeah if they'd have got eddie yates or somebody would have had a <laughs> would have had a hit <laughs> From Dave Stewart and Barbara Gaskin, it's my party. And talking of sad songs, try the lyrics on this one. If you haven't listened, try links for the real, real sad story of romance. with three more young women, one of which actually looks a bit new romantic, insists that we listen to the lyrics of the next song because they mean something. It's So This Is Romance by so, Lynx. Yeah, you've got you've got um, a woman there with Simon Bates who's got proper Princess Di hair, and mm. this was only a few months after the royal wedding, and it's bringing back the horror to me of this yeah. period of about, God, it could be anything up to two years, where... All women, all, all girls and young women wanted to look like Princess Diana, yes. and it just, it, and even men, yes. some men did, and it just, it just wasn't a good look. No, well, it was terrible, <laughs> wasn't it? I don't know how I managed to have a wank in the early eighties. I really don't. <laughs> Formed in London in nineteen eighty, Lynx were initially a multiracial band, which were presented as a duo of David Grant on vocals and Sketch on bass. Although their backing singer was Junior Giscombe, yet to have a hit with Mama used to say. Their debut single, You're Lying, got to number 15, and the follow-up, Intuition, got to number 7, thanks in part to their video being played on Top of the Pops due to a BBC technician strike which banned in-studio performances. This is the follow-up to Throw Away the Key, which got to number 21, and it's up this week from number 19 to number 18. The song is about um, David Grant's cousin uh, writing him a letter, uh, about some uh, misfortune in the in the relationship front, and uh, I I can't really I can't really sort of empathise with this because the last time I saw my cousin, he got pissed up at our auntie's 80th birthday do, and he spent all night. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Asking me if I was gay because I hadn't got anyone up the stick yet. So <laughs> if I got a letter, so if I got a letter from him saying his missus had fucked off with someone else, I'd just laugh my tits off. It would be the song would be like a version of the laughing policeman. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Right, <laughs> with the chorus. This is the thing, right? You got Simon Bates. He's like a he's, he's like a school teacher, isn't he? Sitting us down and he's saying, uh, "What yeah. you're saying? We've got this real sad, sad story about romance." Um, mm. and, is, and he's seen one or two in his time. Bear yeah, in mind. I mean, he's in our tune mode here, isn't he? He's saying, mm. to, right, let's get the quote. He says, talking of sad songs, try the lyrics on this one. If you haven't listened, try links for the real sad story of romance. And to be honest, he's bigged it up a bit too much, hasn't he? Because he has, you're, you're yeah. expecting something incredible. You're expecting something from the pen of, you know, a latter-day Leonard Cohen or Smokey Robinson or something like that. But <laughs> it's just crap. I mean... Uh, Right, here's a, here's a quote from the from the lyrics that Simon Bates thought we had to sit down and listen to. Um, in her last letter, she was water skiing and she has learned to drive a car. A gigolo bearing a gigolo <laughs> bearing the name Romero takes her for evenings in a cocktail bar. I mean, what you know? This was this is what Simon Bates thinks. Pay attention, children. This is proper yeah. proper songwriting. And you got. Um, uh, you, you've got you've got David Grant, meanwhile, waving his arms in the air and getting the audience to do the same while someone plays a, a jaunty yeah. tune on a clarinet. The drummer looks like a bouncer at Talk of the Town. Um, yes. There's, 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 there's a whole kind of sleeveless um, T-shirt, the sort of cap sleeve T-shirt thing going on. So it's just kind of a fashion yeah. disaster. It's aesthetically appalling. And I quite like a bit of um, some of those other Link singles you, you mentioned were pretty decent. But yeah. th- this yeah. is very um, slender and slim and crap. And just Bates talking about it as, it, as if it's like, you know, uh, the Book of Revelations or something yeah. is extraordinary uh, to me. But David Grant's brought the letter with him to prove that he's not bullshitting. So, you know, you've got to give him that. Yeah, they, they, got, they use a few props mm. um, in this. There's uh, uh, also the last line, it says, can I pour you a drink before yes. you go? And he's got a cocktail shaker yes. and some cocktail glasses set up on the piano, just next to the cork. So you can imagine the keyboard player. Don't spill it. Just do not spill that. All right. Oh fuck. And he's only got me. he's only got two um, glasses as well, and there's four people in the band. So that's that's not good. Yeah, plenty. but he's he's acting out the story. I tell you what, though, you're right to highlight the fact that this letter is supposedly from his cousin, and it sounds so weird that he rather than saying it happened to yeah. him or his friend or his even his brother why his cousin because it's not true i mean this isn't a true story you what? know this is really? a true story because it's it's not plausible i'm sorry this story is not plausible let's look at what happens here um his 
girlfriend says she's going on holiday, um, yeah. like without him, and he's like, oh, okay. And he says, oh, no, she, no. he expected no, her to that, be yeah. gone for not a... Not in 1981, she's not. Yeah, well, he, he expected her to be gone for a week or two. And he says, well, that was mm. more than two months ago. And it's like he's only yeah. just starting to, you know... Uh, and then he says, "Oh yeah, no, she said yeah, they're always, she's been sending always him, a last to know, Taylor. You know yeah, that but she's been sending him letters saying, well, 'Well, I'm going yeah. to a cocktail bar with a gigolo, um, mm. and I've learned <laughs> I've, I'm water skiing, and I've learned to drive a car.' Yeah. Who learns to drive a car on holiday? Well, she's done a fucking yeah. intensive driving course, like <laughs> in like you know Martinique or wherever. She, it's like it's not." It's not believable. To be um, fair, I do know women like that. I do, I do know women like ex ex girlfriends of uh, of friends of mine who would uh, absolutely, uh, maybe using modern technology, um, rub your face in it in that way. <laughs> they would absolutely disappear yeah. for um, an unexpected holiday and uh, let you know what they've been doing while they're away. Well, a bit, she'd be she'd be posting photos on Facebook, wouldn't she now? But but this guy thinks that it's still his girlfriend. That's the thing, because at the end of the song... Well, he's a twat, isn't he? But at the end of the song, he goes out there to bring her home. And mm. then he's surprised when she tells him that she's just got married. It's like, I've seen porn films with more realistic plots than this. <laughs> it's... It doesn't make sense. But he gets a can of summer out of it, though, doesn't he? I mean, she's not that much of a cow. Oh, I don't know. I, I, I broke your heart here. Or have, a, have a can of, I don't know, um, Quattro or something. <laughs> yeah, a, a can of Kestrel. But it's, the thing is, it's, um, <laughs> it's yeah, I took, I took Bates' advice, and I'm not grateful. And it's not even mm. a good record, because um, I don't like that obnoxious singing style, that sort of bleating singing style. But you mm. get on a few of these sort of uh, synth bassy soul records from the time. Um, yeah. And I don't like David Grant's look either. It was a, a sort of a short... He's an early adopter of the wet look, isn't he? Yeah, but that whole thing, it's a, it was a short-lived look for black guys. There was him and uh, Junior, a couple of musical mm. youth with the cap sleep T-shirt and the si- sensible yeah. glasses. and the, Yeah, and it's, it's, it's very business first and it's, yeah. it's not flattering. There's nothing, no. nothing good about this record except the drummer who looks like he's at the PFA Awards dinner. Um, he's somehow <laughs> in 1979, and he's somehow been uh, lured on stage to sit in with the band. But the audience are enjoying it, aren't they? I, and I, I mean, I noticed there was a skinhead in the crowd in a black Fred Perry and white braces, and he's waving his hands in the air like a good one. <laughs> I mean, I, I think he was expecting, I don't know the Cockney Rejects or Combat 84, but, you know, he's happy enough. It's close enough. <laughs> but I, I have to say, this is the biggest audience we've ever seen at a Top of the Pops, isn't it? There's fucking millions on them. Yeah, they won't shut up. That's the problem. Yeah, They're chattering all yeah, through this definitely. one as well. It's really noticeable on this. Oh, and not, and not listening to the real story of romance. Yeah, that's why, that's why Bates gets so pissed off. They must have been doing it in the run-through yeah. as well. But uh, that that letter that he got off his cousin at the end, it said, P.S., please don't make a song out of this or anything. (laughs) So the following week, so this is Romance, jumped three places to number 15, its highest position. This will be their last top 40 hit, and the band split up in 1983. But David Grant got involved with and then married one of the professional dancers on Top of the Pops, Carrie Gray, had a brief solo career, and the pair of them would pop up on Fame Academy. Richie, 
and Lulu and Jeremy. BBC have managed to find the only person in the audience who looks like a new romantic and have stuck her next to Simon Bates as he introduces Endless Love by Diana Ross and Lionel Richie. Uh, the song that was written by Lionel Richie for the Franco Zeffirelli film Endless Love starring Brooke Shields. Uh, by this time in the reign of Michael Hurl as producer of Top of the Pops, Legs and Co are starting to realise that they're on their last legs. Not only is the rising popularity of promo videos cutting into their performance time, but they're finding themselves reduced to backing bands and artists. In this instance, only Lulu is required, dancing a duet with someone called Jeremy. The song is up this week from number 13 to number 17, but let's put the song to one side for a bit, as we always do in dance routines. Legs and Co. It's like they're they're facing the threat of redundancy, like everyone else. It's terrible. This is like the point where they get a letter from Lulu and Jeremy <laughs> telling them that they they've just learned to drive a car. <laughs> it, it, I was really disappointed because they didn't tell you it was Lulu from Legs and Co. They just said it's Lulu and Jeremy. I was expecting yeah. the Lulu and the oh, and yeah. the Jeremy Corbyn, uh, Jeremy Thorpe. <laughs> yeah, or well, Jeremy Thorpe. Uh, it's Jeremy Thorpe and Norman Scott. Uh, with yes. Diana Ross and Lionel Richie's Endless Love. Now, it's, uh, <laughs> you can imagine poor old Jill and Patty sat at home thinking, what the yeah, fuck is Pauline. this? Yeah, as indeed yeah. am I, because what the fuck is this? Do you think Lulu scabbed or something? It's not very sisterly, is it? No. Maybe they, t- maybe they told her that the others would get a turn to dance with Jeremy as well, but... Never happened. Yeah. No, she's shaping up to it. be the big star in it. She thinks she's Diana Ross, like, you know, uh, walking away from the Supremes yeah. or, you know, um, became the special man. Now they were Lulu's <laughs> band, to quote Ziggy. Yeah, they're ho- hoping that the future Legs and Co appearances, they'll be billed as Lulu and Legs and Co. Yeah. Yeah. Or Lulu and Co. This dance routine is of no value. I feel. No, it's not. I don't like to say that about many things on All Top of the Pops because, you know. As we know, you can always find value if you dig for yeah. it. But this That's is of right. and we do. This is of no value, and um, I have nothing to say about this at all. I think the routine is, and I'm sorry to diss your local heroes, or, or, or you know, implicitly do so, Al. But it's basically Torval and Dean before Torval and Dean happened. You know, um, it's very, mm. it's very kind of in inverted commas beautiful in that way that uh, the pa- the parent generation would perceive beauty. Yeah, be. this is more for the mums than the dads, isn't it? Once again, the dads have been robbed. You know, they've had to sit through all these puffy-looking lads, and um, when their moment comes, it's they've been denied. They've, yeah. they've got to look at Jeremy's PVC trousered arse. Can I just ask, have either of the other two of you seen um, the Brooke Shields film, Endless Love? Did you see it? No. Well, I, I have. No, I, can't, I saw I can't it. Say Good. I actually, uh, yeah, I, I went to the Theatre Royal Cinema in Barry. Uh, to see Endless Love, which I I believe was a double A rated film, which was kind of just like slight, slightly less than an X. And I was, uh, you know, 13 or 14 at the time. So it was the closest you could get. I think I went because there might be some tits in it or something. Brooke Shields. So yeah, I went to see the film and it's pretty trashy. But I, I looked into this uh, when I knew we were going to be talking about it. I looked on Wikipedia and I found a poster for the film. And the tagline uh, on the poster goes, it goes, she is 15, he is 17, 
the love every parent fears. Now, mm. those parents have got a bit of a failure of the imagination, it yeah. strikes me. <laughs> yeah. think, things yeah. could be a fucking sight worse than that, let's face it. She's 15, he is Prince Charles. <laughs> <laughs> Are we going to talk about the song? Oh, why not? Why not? I'll tell you what, right? I'm, I I love Motown. I yes. absolutely love Motown. And this would be around the time, actually, that I was getting obsessed with Motown. And I found it hard to square what Motown was in 1981, which was this, mm. with the, the stuff that I was delving back into, which was, you know, um, 60s yeah. records by the Four Tops and the Isley Brothers and the Supremes and Marvin Gaye and all of that. Mm. Um, and um, it's, it's a bit of a kind of blunt instrument way of looking at it, but I think... Um, when Motown uh, left Detroit in, what was it, 1970 and moved to Los Angeles. Yeah. It pretty much lost its soul and became this kind of um, corporate machine um, and not not mm. in a good way because, you know, obviously it was a sort of hit factory before that. But um, there's something especially insincere, I think, about this type of duet. It's a bit like when uh, in, in uh, medieval times... Um, that a, you know, a, a prince of England would be forced to marry a princess from Spain to bring two great houses together. It's it's <laughs> yes. like you've, you've got Lionel Richie, who he happened to write this song, fair enough, mm. but it might just as well have been written by Norman Whitfield or, or whoever. Yeah. Um, and and th- there's no rapport between him and Diana Ross. As far as I know, no. they never had a relationship. Now, I know, you know, that that's a dumb way of looking at it because you know, pop is fiction, but there's just something about these, these duets where you get one megastar and another megastar ships the pass in the night. Um, yeah. going into a vocal Islands booth. in the streams. Yeah. Singing this thing together. Um, I guess that the most famous example was um, on my own by Patti LaBelle and Michael McDonald, where they apparently mm. never even met. Right. Um, but, but, but this, this one, this, there's, there's just something about it that, um, Maybe I was too much of a Puritan about about soul and what soul had to mean at the time, but mm. the idea that Motown had come to this, yeah, uh, I, I found kind of upsetting. And also, I don't think my musical palette was sufficiently developed uh, at this point to even understand the chord changes in it. These kind of um, pseudo classical movements with, with within the song, I, I yeah. just didn't get it. A bit like th- things like. Um, uh, I don't know, "Woman in Love" by Barbara Streisand. Yeah, the, um, you know, obviously that's, that's Barry Gibb. But but there the, there are certain ways that that those songs move, which um, I didn't quite get because I still had a kind of you know um, three or four chord understanding of because you were chucking petrol bombs in a field, Simon. That's I was I was too busy chucking petrol bombs. This music isn't calling to your soul. It, it wasn't. It? Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are these are sighing chord changes mm. and. Uh, that age, you don't do a lot of sighing, no. really, do you? It's not a part of your emotional <laughs> vocabulary. You do a lot of huffing, but not sighing. <laughs> yeah, huffing, yeah. And to think we're just one year removed from Upside Down and my old piano. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, Diana, what are you doing knocking about with this yeah. weird bloke? And Lionel Richie's all right. You know, it's not long ago he'd been writing Brick House and Machine yeah. Gun and stuff like that. But no, this is awful, really. Isn't it? So the following week, Endless Love dropped down to number nine. Oh, Lulu and Jeremy. It went on, though, to become the second biggest selling single in America in 1981 after Betty Davis Eyes by King Kahn's. Meanwhile, Legs and Co. were less than a month away from performing their final song on top of the pops, the Birdie Song by the Tweets. It could have been worse. It could have been <laughs> the Birdie Song by the Electronics. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Tragically, in this chart, as we'll see later, the tweets are at, what is it, number eight with the Birdie song. 
was mm. the original version by the Electronicas is languishing down at about number 29 or something. Well, the, the, the pioneers always suffer, yeah, don't they? Yeah, I know, just too early. Yeah, they were the Betamax birdie song, really, weren't they? <laughs> and they were overtaken by the VHS <laughs> of the tweets. Here's a single that isn't new and a band that's been around for a while, but with a single hit, it's Japan and Quiet Life over here. Formed in Catford in 1974, Japan was signed to Hansa Records in 1977 and recorded three unsuccessful albums for the German label. At the end of their deal, they signed to Virgin Records, recorded two singles, Gentlemen Take Polaroids and The Art of Parties, and both of them hung about the lower reaches of the charts. Then, in August of 1981, their old label re-released Quiet Life, which had been the B-side of their last Hansa release, and it's just scraped into the top 40 at number 39. Now, if we're talking about Lady Die here... <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of work gone into that hairstyle. But it, it's... Yeah. Mm. it's Yeah, it's a bit Lady Die, a bit Dallas. Uh, it's a bit proto-George mm. Michael. It's... I don't think he... I think from from now, looking back, I don't think he looks like he would have wanted to have looked this far into the future. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's he's very mm. much rooted in a time and place, that hairstyle, in a way that I don't think he'd have been, he'd have been too pleased with. <laughs> Japan, of course, went to great pains to point out that they weren't a new romantic band. Simon, what do you think about that? About them not being a new romantic band? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess they've been knocking around since the 70s, so you can understand them wanting to distance themselves a bit. Mm. But they were clearly precursors of the Neuromantic movement, and this is an almost stereotypical Neuromantic sound. This record is actually one of several attempts by arty white guys to channel I Feel Love um, mm. uh, by Donna Summer. Yes, um, another point. example would be I, I Travel by Simple Minds. Um, yeah. And I... I, I absolutely love this record. Um, I think I think it's amazing. It, it's transcendent and transgressive. Um, the way that uh, David Sylvian just sings the word boys throughout in this really offhand way, mm. um, which you know seemed kind of daringly gay at the time. Um, and and they, Japan felt like they came pre-packed with this kind of backstory and secret knowledge that um, there was something more than meets the eye to them. And when you're 14. That kind of stuff's really exciting. Musically, I do love those kind of helicopter synths they got going on. Mm. And it's got that fretless bass. Yes. Uh, could could that be the first fretless bass? Because this is before Pino Palladino with Paul Young. Um, yes. And, and, uh, and, and before um, uh, Gary Newman uh, roped in. Uh, it, it was Mick Khan, wasn't it? Yeah. From, from Japan that uh, um, Newman uh, would uh, kind of steal. Um but yeah, and, and Mick Kahn himself uh, having no eyebrows. I had not seen what David Bowie looked like in 1973 at this point. So the idea of a man going on top of the pops and no eyebrows was completely freaky. Mm. As for Sylvian, um, I've I got to disagree with Taylor. I think David Sylvian looks absolutely amazing here. Um, he was mm. described, was he in Smash Hits as the most beautiful man in, in the world? Uh, I, I believe it was their, their press office put out to the news of the world that uh, a newspaper in Japan had called David Sylvian the most beautiful man in the world and they printed it and then the next thing the press office did was go to a newspaper in Japan and say, hey, look, the news of the world printed that David Sylvian's <laughs> the most beautiful man in the world. That is pretty smart <laughs> press manipulation. I've got to hand that to them. 
Um, and and I I do like his suit that he's wearing here. It's like a prince. Is it a Prince of Wales check? That check that he's wearing there. I think I believe it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, I believe it is. And uh, this this song uh, actually made me then investigate Japan. And uh, do you remember? Do you guys remember the reissue label Fame? Um, there's this label called yeah. Fame that used to put out albums mm. that have been out a little while, and it'll basically be the original album, but in the corner of the sleeve, it would have this Fame logo that was like a kind of electrocardiogram thing, a sort of zigzag thing. Um, yeah. And I, I got quite a lot of records in, in Boots for about two ninety nine on that. And, you know, one of... In fact, I got um, Searching for the Young Soul Rebels by Dexys on a Fame reissue. Um, but this one, it was um, mm. Assemblage or Assemblage. I don't know which way you'd say it, but it was basically a greatest hit so far of, of Japan and it had this on it. And um, and I, I absolutely loved it. And, um, yeah, I, 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 just, I just feel like uh, this, this is... You know, Japan in this era are another strong argument why 1981 was a brilliant year to be a pop kid. Mm. But this is not a 1981 song, is it? It's uh, it's, it's one of their oldest. No, nah, it's not. But are there any other examples of a band who end up competing with their own product on a different label? Yeah, loads. I mean, Adam and the Ants. Um, Adam and the Ants around this time um, were competing with reissues of, of Deutsche of Girls course. and Young Parisians. Yes, of course, they were. Yeah. And then late, later on in the 80s, Madonna um, had uh, was it Gambler got reissued by an old label or something like that. So mm. yeah, it's it's a sort of thing that, that goes on particularly in the 80s, seems to happen quite often. I mean, do you think it would fuck you off if you're in a band and all your old shit's being dragged up? And you, I mean, Japan are obviously quite happy to promote it. I mean, this is their first big hit. I wonder what the record, I wonder what Virgin was thinking at the time. Yeah, because this was on Hansa, wasn't it? And, That's um, right, yeah. They, and it, it happened again, I think, with I Second That Emotion, yep. which uh, was, was another oldie of theirs that um, got reissued and became a hit. And, and Quiet Life was the B-side of I Second That Emotion when it first came out, so... I've never been 100% convinced by Japan, except for uh, Ghosts, which is one of the the of best course. records of the first half of the 80s. And to me, mm. when I listen to their albums, that seems to have come almost out of nowhere. Um, I like this one as well, even though it is like a more tasteful Duran Duran and therefore slightly less interesting Duran Duran. But it's a very good record. Mm. It's just... Um, yeah, when I investigated Japan, I was uh, a bit let down at the fact that most of their stuff is basically like interior decor, you know. Um, mm. But, you know, uh, better that they exist than they don't exist. And at this point in this Top of the Pops, it's crying out for a bit of self-conscious art, or at least artiness. Yes. Yeah. Um, and they, f- they yeah. fill that gap uh, very well. I think it's Taylor mentions Duran Duran there and Japan were kind of the highbrow Duran Duran. And hearing this song uh, on top of the pops would have been a way for, you know, Duranis or proto Duranis to find their way in. But once you actually go and buy what would have been the contemporary Japan album, Tin Drum, it's really pretty challenging listening. It's it's Mm. it's almost bracingly unlistenable, but in, in a brilliant way, if you know what I mean. The best thing about this clip is the drummer in eye makeup that really doesn't suit him but he has to, he yeah. has to have it because it's important um but he does yeah. do a pretty good glassy stare and of course david sylvan's got his brian ferry voice on hasn't he yeah totally i mean let's see him deny that and stay fashionable yes i, I think there was a, a rumor going around our school that um david <laughs> sylvan did the did the vocals on the allied for carpets for you advert that was around <laughs> at the time <laughs> 
because nobody would think Brian Ferry would stoop so low as to do that. <laughs> so the following week, Quiet Life jumped up to number 26 and would get as high as number 19. The follow-up, Visions of China, on Virgin would only go as high as number 32, and the band's new output would compete with Hansa re-releases right up until they split up at the end of 1982. It's heaven 17 on top of the pops. Play to win by heaven 17. Formed in Sheffield in 1980 after Ian Marsh and Martin Ware left the original incarnation of the Human League and recruited Glenn Gregory, who was the original choice for lead singer of the Human League, Heaven 17's first single, We Don't Need This Fascist Groove Thang, stalled at number 45 in March of this year when it was banned by the BBC for mentioning Ronald Reagan, even though it said Regan. Uh, for some bizarre reason, I don't know. Did they, did they apply that same standard to Brown Sauce? Yeah. Who also mentioned uh, Ronald Reagan and also pronounced it Regan. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. To rhyme with. Different when it's uh, Keegan. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. A bit different when it's on fucking BBC Records. Yeah. That's how how the BBC is, mate. In any case, this is the follow up single and it's static at number 52. Hasn't jumped up uh, the previous week, but it's still on top of the pops. Um, I want to like this more than I actually do. Um, mm. It's high concept, um, yep. but at this point, the concept is better than the tune. Um, it's interesting that there's a bit in the lyrics that goes, suit the action to the word, and at this point, Heaven 17 are not quite doing that mm. um, for me. Um, I, I do like Fascist Groove thing that you mentioned, but um, for yeah. me, that when they re- when it really came together for them was the single Let Me Go, Thought Let Me Go was an incredible record. Yeah. But um, get into the at this top point, 40, though, unfortunately. No, at this point, they're not quite there. Um, it's busy, bustling, but um, it's all above the waist. It's got no hips and no arse, this, right? Mm. Um, and uh, the crowd the crowd seem to love it um, in much the yeah. same way that they loved Lynx. They're going as crazy for this as they went for Lynx. Um, is yeah. that victory or, or failure? I don't know. Um, and, or is that uh, some BBC bloke with a stick? Yeah, maybe. Um, as Taylor pointed out uh, earlier, uh, Glenn, Re- sorry, Glenn Gregory does indeed do that play to win thing at the start, same as Noddy did. Uh, so mm-hmm. that was obviously uh, a little trick that the BBC decided to play around with. Um, I noticed uh, Martin Ware playing a guitar rather than the synth uh, on this one, kind of peculiar. <gasps> but the thing that really stood oh, out more than anything else was their hair. The hair in this uh, performance is really bad. Um, Ian Craig Marsh and Glenn Gregory have both got these little rat tails. They've got their hair tied back in these little rat tails, which is a really distressing yeah. hairdo, which I've got to hold my hands up and confess I was guilty of. Um, I was not copying oh, them. Really? I was copying second wave Dexies. Um, Dexies mm. of the era of Plan B and Show Me when they were in their kind of yeah. jogging bottoms and had the little rat tails. And uh, I actually got sent home from school for having this hairdo. So, um, you oh, know, yeah, mate. yeah, I got, I got bad associations with, with that with that hairstyle. But yeah, just Heaven 17, great band, a lot of respect for them. I like the ideas of it, but this song's just not happening. I think they've got that hair um, just in case anyone doesn't understand that they're wearing those suits ironically. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's uh, mm. yeah. You keep waiting for something to happen in this record, and it never does. It just jogs mm. on the spot, and then eventually you're rewarded with that comedy parping keyboard brass solo that is so mm. so clearly the best bit of the record. Um, no, it's it, yeah, it's and the bad vocal, terrible vocal. Um, he's an awful mm. singer. He thinks because it's like a sort of a white funk track, you can just do anything over the top, but it's not that simple. He does a little shouted bit where he goes, nah, 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 and it's uh, mm. it, it, he just sounds foolish. It's horrible, horrible. <laughs> this is a really, really unimpressive record. Anything else to say about it? Yeah, I was I was going to say that um, we mentioned earlier that uh, a lot of these neuromantics were Bowie kids, right? Yeah. And, um, most of them would have drawn on two things, either the Berlin stuff or the Ziggy stuff. But I think Heaven 17 are actually almost unique at, at this point in drawing upon young Americans. Um, right. Particularly, um, particularly the song Win, of course. The song Win by David Bowie is, is what they're basically channeling here. Um, mm. So I, 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 can, I can see what, what they're trying to do, but that's it. They're trying. Mm. So Play to Win edged up to number 49 the next week and got no higher than number 46. They played and lost. The follow-up Penthouse and Pavement would only make it to number 57 in November of this year and it wouldn't be until 1983 that they scored top five hits with Temptation and Come Live With Me. And now let's take a look at what's happening in the top 30. Into the 30 goes Adrian Baker, Gideon Park with Seasons of Gold. The Electronica's version of the original Bird Dance is at 29. And down goes Genesis to 28 with Abacab. Teardrop Explodes is up to 27. And down to 26 goes UB40. Down as well, Ultravox, The Thin Wall to 25. A climber, though, for Depeche Mode, just can't get enough, is at 24. Everybody's Salsa and Modern Romance is down to 23. And Madness, a new entry at 22 with Shut Up. And here at 21 on Top of the Pops, Imagination and In and Out of Love. in London earlier this year by Lee John, a former backing singer for touring American soul bands, and bassist Ashley Ingram, Imagination were created from the ashes of fizz, with three Zs, with a desire to form a, quote, slinker, sexer, and erotic soul funk band. Calling themselves Imagination in tribute to the recently shot John Lennon, their first single, Body Talk, made it all the way up to number four in July of this year, thanks to a Top of the Pops performance where they wore skimpy gold lame shorts. This is a follow-up, and it's gone up from number 22 to number 21 this week. Never a chore, their appearances on Top of the Pops. This this is probably no. the least extraordinary of all of them, uh, in that Lee yes. John has turned up in a sort of gold lame tic-tac man outfit. It's yes. not, not yes. impressive. Um and the base. Oh, and also he's got yellow shoes because it's like it's the closest colour he could find to gold. Um, so he's got gold mm. trousers, <laughs> gold and white shirt, gold and white hat, and yellow shoes. And it it really. It, I mean, it clashes. You know, it's not. You'd think he'd have known. Yeah. Uh, bass player gets to do his unique emoting style on a, a couple of lines, yes. and 
It was only about halfway through that I realised he's got no strap on his bass, um, which means wow. it's impossible to play. You you can't play a, mm. a heavy Fender bass without a strap on it while standing up. So it's just a prop, and he uses it as a prop throughout. Mm. Um, there's a bit where it looks... Well, yeah. You say that they're miming. Yeah, but they're, they're, they're doing more than miming. They're, uh, it's like... There's a bit where it's like he's petting a, a large collie <laughs> or uh, he sort of puts it down and crouches down and strokes it. It's um, yeah. I mean, he could have taken it further, but it's it's yeah. They, you you don't get bored watching them. The, the the worst thing about this is that the drummer didn't come out from behind the drums at the end and start dancing with them, which mm. he does in all the others, which is <laughs> yeah. always always worth waiting for. I mean, the one thing that struck me about Imagination was they were like hot gossip, but without the silly white girls getting in the way with their skimpiness. Yeah, it is. It, it, 1981, <laughs> yeah, probably the only time that a black British band could get away with looking like this. Um, yeah, definitely, uh, yeah. Partly for sort of complex sociological reasons, but also because it doesn't fit with a white stereotype of black culture, or at least the approved and appreciated images of, of black men. There's this weird situation where you get the mm. sort of sexually insecure white cultural guardians who are quite happy to mm. appreciate and hail black men who present themselves as more virile and heterosexual than they are but they suddenly mm. suddenly get all uh, all weird when it's black men presenting themselves as even gayer than white men Suddenly, this uh, people don't like to see it for some reason. And I, but I've got to say, I look at Lee John and I just think mm, he's he's more virile than me. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm willing to concede that to him. <laughs> this is fantastic. The only disappointment with this is, first of all, the record is this is their worst hit, right? This is the the others are better, um, and they mm. just it's like they camp it up, but it's like they don't want to go too far, and it's a shame because. There's something almost intrusive about the sheer level of campness of their earlier Top of the Pops appearances. The sort of the the records kind of insinuate themselves into your consciousness while they're literally thrusting their crotches into your face, and it's uh, <laughs> it, it's really entertaining. But um, it's like you get a the sense they're holding back. Yeah, a bit on this one. I can imagine my dad being really quiet while this was on, <laughs> lost in thought. <laughs> you know what i've only really kind of come to appreciate in later life how great imagination were at that time i don't think i really mm. got it at the time but the sound is fantastic that that's yeah. that slow and low groove they got going on but with mm. those kind of opulent textures on top as well um uh it's i do you know i i didn't realize you mentioned they were previously fizzes which um is mm. presumably why he was Lee E E E John, and not as Possibly. as he let people believe at the time that the three E stood for extra exciting energy. Do you know that, that, that's, that's, <laughs> that, that? That's what he claimed in Smash Hits and stuff. Um, right. <laughs> uh, Ashley Ingram, the bassist. I I love Ashley Ingram. I I think um, he ought to be a cult hero in the way that you know Steve Priest from the Suite is, because mm. everyone forgets about him, but. He's yeah. in a way um, even more outrageous because he looks more of a sort of uh, muscular black guy, um, but mm. he's being really, really gay at you. Um, and and I, yeah, I, I, I love that. Um, they, they, there's a drummer and there's a bassist, but there's no hint of where the music 
comes from in this performance. There's even you, you can hear a harp going on. Uh, no, no, you can't. No, you can see yeah. a harp. You can see a harp, but you can't hear yeah. a harp. That's what that's what I meant mm. to say. Um, which which I think is amazing and and as subversive in its way as as Depeche Mode with their little reel to reel tape machine. Mm. And um, this was only their second single. Just trying to get the timeline is so they'd only had Body Talk before this, so they would yeah. go on. I mean, some of the later stuff like Music and Lights and Just an Illusion, yeah. absolutely brilliant records. You stick them on now, turn the volume up, yeah. they totally stand up. Those records. Mm. And um, uh, and I, yeah. I just think I just think Lee John's look was quite something. Maybe not in this clip. I, as you say, he doesn't look great in this one, but. His general kind of thing, I, I think it looks inspired, better than me, though. I don't know if, you, if if any of you watched the um, pretty awful HBO Supernatural series True Blood, but there was a um, a gay character in that called uh, Lafayette, played by Nelson Ellis, who died quite recently, and his look is totally Lee John from Imagination. Just trust me on that. Anyway. Right. The great thing as well about Lee is that he's actually not a particularly good-looking man. But he, the way he preens and acts as though he's the most beautiful creature on on God's earth, it mm. really takes a takes something to pull that off. You know, it'd be very easy to do that and be instantly loathsome. But who could who could hate Lee John? Not me. So, In and Out of Love jumped up to number 16 the following week, its highest position. The follow-up flashback would also reach number 16 in November of this year. Uh, they'd have two top five hits in 1982, but they fell off the charts and split up in 1992. They hung it out for a long time, didn't they? I actually booked them to play live at my uni. Right. Um, which was really exciting for me. Yeah, so that was about 1989 or something. What was their rider? Well, <laughs> a harp, I, I, yeah, a harp, um, and yeah, lots of gold things. No, I, I, I wish, <laughs> yeah. I wish I had a story to tell about that, but I've got a feeling it might have, it might not have been imagination. It might have been Lee e, 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 John's imagination. One of those kind of deals, you know what I mean? Yeah, where it's him and a bunch of ringers at that point. I don't know. <sighs> imagination. Right, we've got two more new entries for you on this week's Top of the Pumps. But now let's take a look at the charts. We've looked at 30 to 21, so it's logical. Carry on in the order we meant to carry on in. Number 20. And it's no change at number 20 for Bucks Fizz with one of those nights. Handheld in black and white, dollar are up to 19. Lynch, you've seen them, and they're up to 18 with So This Is Romance. Stars on 45 Part 3 for Star Sound is up at 17. But down go the Rolling Stones to 16 with Start Me Up. The Human League are down as well with Love Action at 15. And down to 14 go ELO with Hold On Tight. Japanese Boy and Anika are down to number 13. And up to position number 12, High Glass and You'll Never Know. Godly and Cream are up to number 11 with Under Your Thumb. And here's one of those new entries. At 22, it's Madness and Shut Up. Simon Bates gives us the first 10 tunes in the top 40, or should it be the last 10 tunes in the top 30? Um, the, the one thing that, that sprung out to me is that he mentioned high gloss, and yeah. it sounded like pint glass. <laughs> yeah, Seriously, I've this... listened to it over and over and over again. He says pint glass. And up to position number 12, pint glass, and you'll never know. It sounds like a skinhead band. Yeah, it would have been a better band name for... 
uh, or a, a more imaginative band name for what they actually were, which was a high. It was a high gloss soul record. Mm. But this is this week's record that I don't remember. Oh right! Every time we do one of these, there's always one. Just one record in the chart mm. that yeah, high gloss is that one for me as well. Yeah, yeah, it's not just that I don't remember how it goes; is I don't remember its existence. Yeah, high gloss, you'll never know. Oh, uh, I know that and, one. You had it all yeah. and threw it all away. Right. Well, I've since heard it, and yeah. it's, you know, it's all right. Did you notice also, by the way, that um, Bucks Fizz, Bucks Fizz, and Dollar are next to each other in the top four? Yes. Yeah. and those yes. bands would later fuse and uh, much acrimony. Yeah, like the like the fly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man, you know when we get a dollar song, man. I know we're going to spend a whole hour talking about that documentary. But handheld in black and white is a brilliant record, and mm. um, that was that was basically Trevor Horn's calling card, which got him the, the gig of then producing the Lexicon of Love for ABC. So yeah. um, even though we're just kind of high glossing over it in this uh, rundown, it's a really important record. Yeah. So anyway, Simon Bates introduces "Shut Up" by Madness. The ninth single in two years and the follow-up to Grey Day, which got to number four in May of this year. This is the second single off their forthcoming and third LP, Seven. It's the second highest new entry this week at number 22. And because it's madness, they're showing the video. Now, by this time, of course, everybody's kind of like waiting for uh, the new madness video every time a song comes out. How does this compare? It's fantastic. It's This is... Um... I mean, not only has this video got 1981 burnt into the grain of the film, um, it's <laughs> it's got it's got the the lack of self consciousness of young British men at this time. Um, like, also, like all madness videos, it, there's no sunshine in this. Right, it's filmed on a really sort of mm. British murk, like nine months of the year. You know, pure overcast. Only fools and horses misery. This like just and just as the yes. monkeys only make sense visually in blinding sunshine, madness only makes sense visually under that you know a grey ceiling of grey day, day yeah. fallen rain. Yeah, on a filthy London street, like never more than six feet from a rat. Yes, it's. Uh, <laughs> but it's. I mean, even if someone did this video now, you'd think it's fucking amazing. Partly mm. just because it includes neither serious singer songwriter emoting nor a load of half naked models twerking you know mm. but it's so idea rich um and it does the important thing is it doesn't detract from the record because mm. if you make one of these early 80s videos where there's a lot going on and a lot of ideas in it and it it they're designed to grab the attention the danger is always that you obscure whatever's good about the record mm. and this doesn't because um, I mean, it's already quite a creatively busy pop record with a, a lot of ideas in it. So you have to be very careful. But I think this works because it does exactly the same thing that their songs do, which is to take the ugly and the mundane and the quotidian and charge it with uh, with a dry imagination. Mm. You know what I mean? Like a, a dry, droll imagination. And so it works alongside the song without without muffling it mm. and also you get to see london yeah which yes. is always good back in the, back in the days when yeah. you were allowed to make your own fun simon i once considered forming a seven-piece ska band influenced by music hall and the kinks but then i thought no nah, that'd be madness <laughs> oh dear me i'm so glad you did that joke <laughs> that's your that's your best joke no my written. best joke is the arthur brown joke but we'll talk about that another time 
Um, I was okay. actually really glad to hear Taylor say all the stuff that he did there. Um, mm. I I was um, a huge Madness fan yeah. at the time. Um, even though probably the specials felt like a more important band with more of a kind of um, urgent message. Mm. If I'm going to be honest, Madness were the one that I loved more. And uh, when I was going around with that marker pen tagging alleyways, that Madness M symbol with a hat on top was yeah. one of the things I would have been drawing. And yeah, it was all over my pencil logo. case in my school books. A, a yeah. key thing for any band. Do I we... was in the fan club. I used to get yeah. the, the Nutty Boys comic sent to me every few months and all mm. of that. Um, and and th- they're one of the bands, actually, that for a long time, um, they in fact, they were the only band from my kind of childhood who, as an adult, I couldn't see what I had seen in them. It was like, why did I ever like them? And for, mm. God, 10, maybe 15, 20 years, I just thought, what was I thinking? Why was I into madness? Mm. But I've come full circle. You know, I, I went through a phase of kind of, you know, you go through a phase of putting away childish things and madness yeah. were the childish thing that I put away. But I've I've totally come full circle on it and I can totally see this is just a brilliant song. And the weird thing about Shut Up is that, uh, and, and this, this sort of gives you an idea of how much depth madness's catalogue has got that if you mentioned shut up by madness to the average person in the street they wouldn't even know what you're on about because you mm. know um the the title's not in the lyrics and but if you said pass the blame it. pass the blame and don't blame yeah, yeah they might they might get it but but you know what i mean though it's it's not kind of one of their mm. uh sort of iconic uh, i hate that word songs it's, you know you know it's just it's just not um the video it's uh, I mean, they, they were kings of the comedy video, obviously. And this is a cops yeah. and robbers caper. You've got Lee Kicks Thompson doing his trademark uh, flying saxophonist thing. It was with him. It was always either that or dressing up as a woman. Lee Thompson loved dressing yeah. up as a, a unconvincing, bristly woman. Um, yes. Which uh, you know, I I don't know. You you can you can probably uh, deconstruct that all day long. But um, yeah, I'm I, I'm actually really glad that that I've I've lived long enough to come full circle. And appreciate madness for how brilliant they were. Um, another interesting thing about this: it was a new entry at number twenty-two, mm. which is quite quite low for such a massive band and yeah. a band who had previously had huge hits. But that tells you something about the charts at the time: that songs often did take a while to catch on. They were yeah. the slow burners, and it was, wasn't it? But also, yeah. also in those days, people hadn't quite got into the idea that you have to release your record on a particular day of the week to get maximum yeah. first week sales. They might have released that two days before the charts were compiled. Yeah. Um mm. I think the weirdly enough of all the of all the bands that you wouldn't expect to go in for this sort of marketing, I think the jam were one of the first yeah. to get hip to they this. Were. And they put out going yeah. underground on a day of the week where singles aren't normally released so that it would get a full week sales. Um and it worked, you know, fair play to them. But I mean of course uh, Madness is sort of career trajectory it was a pretty weird one at the time because specials had just split up so they're um they're the, they're the standard bearers of that kind of like you know that two-tone thing even though they're trying to move away yeah from um it. as a sort of rude boy myself uh, i was clinging on to whichever bands were still knocking around you know um i i took a long time to let it go i was yeah. probably still dressing like that in 1983 when all all you had left to cling on to really was you know the fun boy three mm. um Records by the beat that didn't even chart, and the odd bad manners thing, you know. So yeah, Mad- Madness completely uh, outlived the Scar thing, and you know, qu- quite a lot of this stuff has no element of Jamaican music in it 
whatsoever. And this is an example of that, I think. Yeah. And the other thing is, we, we, we've spoken before, well, the mid-80s one we've, we've done is that, you know, videos are already starting to kill Top of the Pops. But at this stage, videos are a huge bonus because this would have been possibly the, the first or second time you'd have the opportunity to see the Madness video. I mean, you'd probably see it on Tizwas or maybe yeah. Swap Shop. But then, you know, you'd have to wait until Thursday. And, you know, I mean, Simon Bates has been shilling the video for, for the number one single, you know, right through the show. So, you know, videos are, are, are becoming very important here. Yeah. The weird thing is we've in, this is what, the eighth one of these, and there haven't haven't really come across that many uh, big videos in any of the Top of the Pops we've done so far. And here, on this one, at the end, we got two of the original kings of the video yeah. right next to each other with two uh superb examples of genuinely fantastic mm. early 80s videos and of course we can't we can't leave this without mentioning the super yob guitar ah dave hill's super yob guitar is brought out i, mean, I can't believe i wonder who owned that at the time do you think do you think dave hill lent it him or it sold it in the late 70s i just wonder how dave hill would have felt um watching this episode of top of the pops uh, you know, with their single Slade that stalled outside the 40. And then, you know, Madness, these, you know, comparative kids who've borrowed his guitar or whatever, and, you know, they're on their way up to the top 10. He's oh. like, you fucking bastards. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been really nice if Madness had lent Slade something for their performance. Like, I don't know, Chaz Smash doing a bit of nutty dancing. Shut Up would jump up to number 10 the following week, and the week after that, it would peak at number 7. The follow-up, It Must Be Love, would get to number 4 in January of 1982, and the follow-up to that, House of Fun, would be their sole number 1. Madness is still going today. They're probably playing in a field to thousands of middle-aged skinheads and their wives and kids as you hear this. And I'd like to see David Ferris tucked inside. Now then, 30 minutes or 35 minutes ago, I promised you the number one. It's coming up right after we've looked at the top ten today in the UK. Give me a slow hand for the Pointer Sisters. They're at number ten this week. And a new entry for the police at number nine. It's Invisible Sun. After last week's Top of the Pops, the tweets have made it to number eight with the Birdie song. And Diana Ross and Lionel Richie have climbed to seven with Endless Love. But down goes Cliff Richard and Wired for Sound to number six. Alvin Stardust is up to five with Pretend, but down goes Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark with Souvenir to four. Ottawa's Hands Up, Give Me Your Heart is up to number three, and same as last week, Soft Cells at number two with Tainted Love, which means with a bang and a yell, it's Adam and the Ants, number one again with Prince Charming. Simon Bates takes us out of madness, brings us into the top ten. And says of Suggs's uh, loud checked suit. I love that suit, and I'd like to see Dave Lee Travis tucked inside it. <laughs> Alas, that never happened, but if seeing Dave Lee Travis acting out part of the Shut Up video was his wish, uh, it, it did come true years <laughs> later when he could have switched on the Six Got News and seen him surrounded by policemen. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather see Dave Lee Travis play Macbeth. Um I mean, yeah, what what kind of... Uh, little uh, Paul Calf reference there. Um, what kind of weird in-joke or office banter was that anyway between Bates and God Travis? Knows. I mean, what... 
God knows. But I mean, we knew we knew who they were. Anyway. They were part of our family, weren't they? Radio One DJs. Yeah, the ones you that you definitely yeah. wanted to go around to see. We're going around to see your uncle <laughs> no. Dave Lee Travis. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have to? No. Simon Bates next week. Big matches on. Uh, in the top ten countdown before Adam the Ants, Simon Bates says, "Give me a slow hand for the Pointer Sisters." Ugh, no thanks. No, thank you, Simon. Oh, like he gave a slow hand to a pig. <laughs> exactly. Sorry, do carry on. Just to make it last. <laughs> we went to the job interview and they said, Simon, we need an artificial inseminator yes. with an easy touch. <laughs> Not come and go in a heated rush. <laughs> so Simon Bates introduces the number one hit single of the week, Prince Charming by Adam and the Ants. Formed in London in 1977 by Stuart Goddard, the former bassist of Bazooka Joe, Adam and the Ants went through several lineup changes, not least when Malcolm McLaren was drafted in as, as an advisor in late, late 1979 and convinced the rest of the band to piss off with him and form Bow Wow Wow. I think he said to him, uh, it's all right, Adam, you can stay and be our hairdresser, which was nice of him. After creating a new set of ants with Marco Peroni, they crashed into the charts in October of 1980 with Dog Eat Dog, which got to number four, and a re-release of Ant Music got to number two in January of 1981. This is the first single from the new LP, which will be released in November, and the follow-up to Stand and Deliver, which entered the charts at number one in May of this year and stayed there for five weeks, and it went straight in at number one the week before. As Simon Bates has been inferring all through the show, it's the video of the song, a reworking of the Cinderella story. Simon, before I take you off the leash, I must say that I, I actually watched the uh, the video for uh, Standard Deliver with a mutual friend of ours. And when it came on, the first thing he said was, this is what it must be like in Simon Price's head all the time. <laughs> you know what I've got written in my notes here? Uh, ballroom scene inside of Simon Price's head. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've got to hold my hands up. That is absolutely fair enough. I've got written down, and I'm not kidding, I've got written down, I want to live inside this video. I mean, you've got that kind of Regency masquerade ball going on, and the chandelier mm. swinging, and the panther, and all of that stuff. It's just amazing. But um, I think straight away, I've got to talk about Diana Dawes, right? Um, yes. Yes. I- I remember being really freaked out by um, how Diana Dawes' arm, when she waves the magic wand, bends beyond 180 yeah. degrees when she brandishes mm. it. And it, it's why I can't watch women playing tennis, right? Because <laughs> um, women, women's arms bend further than 180 degrees, uh, you know, just genetically, that, that's how it is, uh, because of hi- having hips and stuff. Um, mm. And, and I, I think their arms are going to snap when they serve the ball really hard. And when Diana Dawes puts her right. arm up like that and it bends beyond the straight line, I, 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 I don't know, I can't watch. It really freaks me out. Um, the other thing I was going to say about Diana Dawes, this is um, doing the kind of mortality maths thing that, that increasingly you have to do at our age. Um, I remember at the time, she seemed like the oldest granny that could possibly be in a pop video. I thought, why is this old woman? Right. What's this old woman doing in a pop video, right? Um because the last time I'd seen Diana Dawes, I mean, I knew who she was, but the last time I'd seen her was in Steptoe and Sunride again. Where <laughs> oh. um, Arrow goes round and she's, uh, as as all women of whatever age of the time in the early 70s, was wearing a milli skirt and some really severe red drawers and she's bending over the drinks cabinet asking him if he fancies anything. So, yeah, I mean, I thought she was the oldest granny imaginable. Why is she in a pop video? And then when I looked into it, 
She was 49 years old, and that's the age Jesus. exactly that I am now. Oh, God. So, yeah, that is a bit of a cold dagger of ice down the spine. <laughs> it is, um, isn't it? Same as me. A year earlier, though, she had been in The Worm That Turned, that amazing... Yes, uh, of course she know, was, yes. Uh, Tironi's thing. And uh, as a kind of feminazi commandant. Um, and right, and yeah. I thought she was kind of sexy in that. I've got to admit, that, I did think she's kind of hot in that. That incredibly... Um, insightful look at the future which has come true hasn't it absolutely but <laughs> yeah yeah female uh... doctor who indeed <laughs> yeah um... <laughs> i mean the the one thing i've, I've got to get in with i mean as soon, as soon as we've got onto diana doors immediate layer the one thing i've got to add to this is that uh my ex-girlfriend's dad every time this song came on top of the pops and the video came on and diana doors came on he would say <laughs> two pound of tripe in a one pound bag and then he would start singing two pound of tripe in a one pound bag two pound of tripe in a one pound bag <laughs> and and piss off the the kids in the family by singing that all the way through this song they've been waiting all week to see the other thing i want to say about this um is that this is another example of why 1981 was such a great year because it's a deeply odd record musically um it's insane performed isn't it? by this total weirdo pop star um and and it was number one it wasn't just a minor hit bought mm. by you know uh kind of john peel listeners or something like that but you listen to it it's got these weird atonal shrieks going on and uh, yeah. it's based on an obscure rolf harris record war canoe um yes and yes it's just and it's it's got dance moves uh which not actually not not yes. the only song in the top 10 with dance moves you've got the tweets uh birdie song but um, of course, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we like to be told what to do, didn't we, back in 1981? And I just think, um, you know, a lot of punks or punky kind of people at the time thought that Adamant had betrayed punk by becoming this kind of um, dashing um, uh, action hero pinup that, that he became in his videos. Mm. But you know what? I, I, I genuinely think that um, even if his audience had become nine-year-old girls or whatever, it's absolutely brilliant that this guy is number one and you know the message of this song is ridicule is nothing to be scared of genuinely brilliant message yes. for a record for little kids yes. to be singing so yeah i mean yeah, definitely. I, I don't i don't love prince charming but i i think it's um pleasingly weird especially for number one record uh i i want to live inside the video and i think in terms of the message of it you can't fault it so there you go do you think that him actually doing a video based on a pantomime was a fuck you to uh, all those old punks who was accusing him of, of being Mr. Entertainment. I I think he'd already kind of crossed that line with Stand and Deliver. Uh, but, you know, but by the time yeah. this comes, th this is him at his peak. This is his imperial phase in, in every sense. You know, he is basically playing yeah. this kind of emperor in, in, in you know, yeah. in a castle and everything. Um, I, I interviewed Adam a few years ago and I asked him about uh, one of the other singles off this album, Ant Rap, which is also, I, I think they must have filmed it the same day uh, to yeah. save money because it's also in a castle. Um, and yeah. that that's this even weirder kind of Baroque hip hop record, if you remember Ant Rap. And, uh, and, and, and that, that was a top five hit as well. And I just thought that getting to number five is almost as mental as Prince Charming mm. gets to number one. And, it, and he said that he almost put it out as a kind of a dare yeah. or a challenge to his fans. And, he realised that if, if they were buying that, they wouldn't even listen anymore. They were just buying any shit with his name on it. And that's when he became disillusioned with the whole process. 
Right. That madness video didn't drown out the uh, the actual music's effect on the imagination because it knew what to play up and what to play down in order to complement the song. And this is exactly the same mm. in its own preposterous way. It's people when people laugh at this video, it's because it sort of looks cheap. Although it obviously wasn't cheap, because they hired a fucking mm. Black Panther no. for one shot yes. and an enormous American yes. car for one shot. But it's got that sort yeah. of shiny, cheap look to it. But it has to look like that. And that that, that was an actual animal, not a uh, Huey Newton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although Huey Newton would have looked yeah, very good in this. His fee would probably have been more than the, the actual Black Panther. But the point is, it yeah. has to look like this, because it has to look cheap as well as sparkly, because otherwise the lushness of the images would would cushion the rough edge on the music. There's that savage sort of carnal edge on mm. the music, um, which is what makes it probably the best record on this Top of the Pops and one of the very best singles mm. of the year, despite the fact that there's nothing to it as a song. Uh, I mean, no. in terms of how this works as a piece of music, it's closer to Bo Diddley than anything since the days yeah. of black and white. Yeah. You know, this is a a, a mm. really primitive, rawly exciting record. Um, so there has to be a basic vulgarity to how the video looks in order to emphasise that rather than obscure it. And what makes the record and the video work so well together is the mixture of that uh, rough sexiness with this sort of fairy world of the imagination and it comes out sort of part fetishy and part farcical um and oh and also the not only does the last scene of this video remind me of the insider simon price's head it also seems to say something <laughs> about the insider stuart goddard's head because is it just me that gets a, a little bit chilled by that last scene where knowing what we know about sort of problems that that Adamant has had since, when he mm. slowly ascends this staircase, watched by this frozen crowd, um, to look into a shattered mirror featuring himself mm. in various incarnations to the sound of an ominous drum beat. Mm. As a kid, I found that yes. a little bit creepy. Um, and knowing mm. what I know now yeah. about the exciting world of mental health, it, uh, it there's something... It's like a, a sinister harping, yeah. you know, of uh, what was to come. If you made the Prince Charming video, which four people would you be at the end? Growl Tiger, Mr. Badger, Eeyore, and Bodie. Nice. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Simon? I'd like to say Jonathan Rhys-Meyers in Velvet Goldmine, but more realistically, uh, Divine in Pink Flamingos, I think. <laughs> oh, um, yes. I, I, I was, I was going to say about uh, that that a little kind of dress-up parade that Adam does at the end. Yeah, you mentioned he does those those four characters, but do you notice the last thing he is is his own... His, his own self, He's yes. His stand-and-deliver, his highway yes. self. And, and I, yeah. I find it's kind of implicitly meaning that Adam is a bigger star than them all. Yes. That's the message I Which got he was at it. the time. I mean, that, that yeah. look, I mean, you know, there were kids at my school who were insane over Adam and the Ants. And there was there was one lad who um, decided to go to the school youth club um, in, in the dandy highwayman style, but he made two mistakes. Number one, for the white stripe, he used Tipex. 
And number two, instead of doing it across his nose, he did it across his eyelid, <laughs> and his eyelid and his eyes stuck together, and he had to go to hospital. So yeah, not very not very dandy of him. But I mean, my my four people would be Brian Clough, Sly Stone, B Smith out of Prisoner Soul Block H, and Otto Sump out of Judge Dredd, <laughs> the one who had the the, the ugly parlors. Nice. So there you go. All I need to do is write a hit record now and I can live out my dreams. Fuck it, make the video anyway. Yeah. Is this the most important pop video ever? I don't know. Go on, make make a case for that. I mean, it's it's important. I think even above Madness, it was the the first one when you heard the song and, you know, you just went, fucking hell, this is, this is insane. I've got to see the video for it. I mean, he'd set down a marker with a stand and deliver video. But, you know, on top of the box, you knew you were going to see that video at that time. And so I, I just think it is probably the most important pop video ever. Right. But that's just my opinion. It's a strong argument. Anybody want to say anything else about this song? No. Only that I love the roller skating messenger girl who turns up with a ticket to the ball. Who's the most British looking person I've ever <laughs> seen? Prince Charming stayed at number one for two more weeks and was knocked off the top by... <sighs> It's My Party by Dave Stewart and Barbara Gaskin. The follow-up, Ant Rap, will be the last new Adam and the Ant single and will make it to number three. And it was revealed in 2010 that Rolf Harris had won a substantial settlement from Adam Ant after a musicologist found Prince Charming to be musically identical to a 1965 song called War Canoe. Oh, Adam. Well, oh, Marco, didn't he write the music? Oh, did he? Oh, there you go. It's Marco's fault. Oh, yeah. Again, I would reckon it's number one next week, unless it's this thing that we're going out with on top of the pops, the police. Good night. See you next week with Invisible Sun. The first cut from forthcoming LP Ghosts in the Machine, which will be released the following week. This is the seventh top 40 hit by the police and the follow-up to Do 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 Da 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 Da, which got to number five in December of 1980. It was written by Sting while he was living in Ireland during the IRA hunk strikes, and the song's perceived to be about life in Northern Ireland. It's this week's highest new entry at number eight, but because the video features clips of bombed-out bits of Belfast, it's been banned by the BBC, so they've bunged it on at the end and have played it over clips of the band posing on a tropical beach. Looking like three Pavel Nedveds. Yes. <laughs> Has there ever been a decent song about Northern Ireland from anyone who isn't Irish? And did I, did I even have to mention that last bit? No, that is a low bar. There are actually quite a lot of mm. um, songs about um, Northern Ireland knocking around at this time. You had The More I See, The Less I Believe by Funboy 3, uh, would have been a year later, I think. And um, Dexys did mm. more than one, you know, um, about about this, this subject matter. Um, mm. I, I actually... Um, I. I, I like this song and I, I feel I feel that instantly I have to justify why I like it. Um, lyrically, it's really quite tame. I, I had to look up the lyrics well, to see what is it about it that's to do with Northern Ireland. And he mentions the barrel of an armour light and soldiers and being in a prison cell yeah, and all that. That's but it's, it's not it? really, you know, very strong politically. Um, but uh, David Stubbs, uh, I, I guess I should say of this parish at this point, um, David Stubbs uh, um, has, yeah. has in the past compared Nirvana to the police uh, um, while he was at Melody Maker, and he did mm -hmm. so, I believe, disparagingly. You know, meaning sort of belittle 
Nirvana by saying, oh, you know, Nirvana, you know, they, but, you know, oh, that, that scam. Yeah, you know, Nirvana, they, they basically just the police. And, you know, we're, we're all meant to chuckle and think, yeah, how crap Nirvana. I, I actually agree, actually, but, um, I, I think quite highly of Nirvana, particularly around the time of their, um, final album. Uh, mm. and, uh, um, I think you can hear that kind of, um, that, that comparison in this song, particularly. Uh, and I, I just think it's 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 really good mm. musically. The lyrics are just nothing really, you know. They're pretty tame, but I I, I yeah. can definitely hear a common thread between the police and Nirvana in a positive way, even though Stubbsy meant it as a negative one. Yeah, yeah. yeah I I would say it's only Sting that ruins this record. Um, I mean, it's not a great track, but it's inoffensive. It's got a nice sort of nineteen eighty one sound to it. But it's his repulsive mm. voice his loathsome presence and his appalling and unignorable lyrics, right? Because, yeah, Mm. I said earlier, I began to say that Martin Gore was possibly the worst (laughs) lyricist of the 80s. And then I I stopped myself. He's the most classically bad lyricist of the 80s. You quote Mm. Martin... You did say that. you quote Martin Gore's lyrics, and it's like, oh, 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 oh. Whereas Sting is an awful lot more literate. But he's a, a, a worse mm. lyricist, a much worse lyricist. He's got no idea of where to put which word, which means that mm. uh, his lyrics are, always strike the wrong tone. Um, they always sound really forced, and you can't ignore them. You can't just go, oh, yeah, mm. whatever, because they, they they leap out and, and grab you too much in, in all the worst ways. It's not... it's Ties you down and rapes uh, you. Yeah, well, <laughs> quite... But I'll tell you my dirty secret. I'll say that again. Ties you up and rapes you. Let's get it right. Is it? Yeah. Tell us your dirty secret, Taylor. um, The first contemporary LP I ever bought was Regatta de Blanc. Right. When I would have been, what, about (laughs) eight or nine. Um, Right. Because I like walking on the moon and messaging a bottle, you know, which are probably Mm. the best songs they ever did you know when you talk about your first album i always say um one step beyond by madness but really it was outland oster more mm. and regatta de blanc on on cassette oh, so twofer. i always say oh it's not my real yeah first. yeah uh, yeah and um you know i had the first three police albums i, I love that band see my my experience with this though was that prior to this i'd only heard greatest hits albums yeah and beatles albums mm. so i was genuinely surprised when i got this record home and played it and all the other songs were much worse than yeah. walking on the moon and yes. messaging a bottle i didn't realize that that's how albums work but stuart copeland said that the rest of this album's complete bullshit and he, he wasn't lying yeah yeah, yeah. We see the only one that I liked, apart from those, was that one about how his wife's burnt the scrambled eggs and mm. um, his son's gay. Yeah. Um, which, you know, that is very funny at that age. But um, Any other day. Yeah, that's right. The thing is, I mean, Sting, uh, and everything Taylor says about Sting is correct as a lyricist. Um, and Sting is absolutely, to, to coin a word, uh, a very 80s word that I think you, Taylor, used in an earlier podcast, he's a Wally. He's absolutely a Wally. Mm. But um, yes. some of the songs... I'd, I'd go a bit further. <laughs> well, some of, the, <laughs> some of the songs that you've mentioned just now um, are genuinely great pieces of music. I think Walking on the Moon, when you know, when you're 12 years mm. old or something at the time, that was quite a kind of spaced out record, you know, no yeah. pun intended. Yeah. Um, and also... Yeah. Um, can't stand losing you. Uh, basically, uh, uh, you know, mm. a, a, sui- a suicide note in 
uh, sort of uh, new wave uh, form. And I, I think that's a really brilliant song. And the sleeve of that, it's got a guy standing on a block of ice with a noose around his neck and a, yes. a, a three-bar electric heater melting the ice, which is quite oh, extraordinary. Dangerous that's not that the way is. to yeah. do it. Very dangerous. That ice melts. He gets water on that electric heater. He can electrocute himself. <laughs> Terrible. So, you know, what I'm saying is... Shocking example to set The to police, the for all their kind of naffness, and they were a very naff band, they, they definitely had their moments. But you see, the worst thing for me about this album was that it didn't seem like the sort of thing that kids were supposed to enjoy. Mm. Right, because it, it was very kind of grey, and it had songs about sleeping in beds with people and stuff. It was nothing I could relate to. But at the same time, it wasn't alluring an adult. It wasn't like a, yeah. a glimpse into the adult world. It just seemed like all the fun and irreverence and the genuine fear and misery had been drained out of it, mm. and just it was just sort of boring and sensible and it made me not want to get old and of course the bbc choose to um to compliment this this dark song with you know oh here's is the band on holiday wearing uh i think Stuart copeland's wearing an xtc t-shirt isn't he they like to do that didn't they to sort of align themselves yeah. with a new wave because in the video for don't stand so close yeah. to me uh sting is wearing um yes. wearing the beat t-shirt um and yeah. you know as as a kid at the time i'm just thinking you know Fuck off, mate. You know, you are nowhere near <laughs> as cool as them. You are not fit to wear that T-shirt. So Invisible Sun shot up to number two the following week, but dropped to number three the week after that and slid out of the charts. The follow-up, Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic, would get to mm. number one in November of 1981. Yeah, that's where I part company with the police. And they'd have five more hits before they split up in 1986. Synchronicity 2's all right, but... Yeah, that's a tune. But, oh, wrapped around your finger with those candles it's like oh fuck off knowledge college rhyme so what's on tv afterwards well bbc one has sandra dickinson arthur english beryl reed and spike milligan in blankety blank there's part three of dave the triffids with john Dateen and a documentary about how much money america is pissing up the wall on dead expensive tanks and planes BBC Two has an episode of Fame with Steve Davis, sadly not the drama series about a performing arts school, but a documentary about famous people, a documentary about child labour in Thailand and the British Professional Darts Championship from Fiestas in Stockton. ITV has TVI, News at 10, Soap and Danger UXB. And that closes the book on that episode of Top of the Pop. So what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow, dear boys? Definitely the Madness video. Yeah, you'd have no choice but to talk about Madness because it's what the nine-year-old alpha males would have been talking about and they would uh, they were going yeah. to set the topic. Uh, this is assuming that, that everyone had mm. already got used to the sight of imagination. <laughs> yeah, and, and of course, you know, we've got, we've got to say that um, Madness are moving away from the, um, the bummer conga, as uh, Mr. Stubbs has it, to the falling over pyramid. And I'm guessing there'd be a lot of reenactments of that in playgrounds around the country the next day. Oh, that was a clever little thing in that video. I forgot to mention, mm-hmm. when they're standing in that pyramid, that was the pose they then adopted on their next yes. album, Seven. Uh, so it's almost sort of uh, subliminally uh, planting that image in your head yep. so that when the album comes out, you've already seen it. Yeah, clever. Simon, anything we're talking about in the playground tomorrow? Yeah, definitely the Madness video. I went to an all-boys school, so you know, no way would we talking about uh, Adam and the Ants or anything like that, um, we probably would have been, yeah, just uh, sort of reenacting various skits from the Madness video and and so on and 
possibly uh, somebody would have said something vaguely off colour about Lee E. E. John. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I would imagine that would be it. And what are we buying on Saturday? Um, I actually bought Shut Up by Madness um, and I also bought Depeche Mode, Just Can't Get Enough. Yeah, Madness. Uh, may have bought uh, Adam and the Ants already. And what does this episode tell us about 1981? Mm, rhythm was king again uh, for the first time in a while. Mm. Uh, and it was the last point in history where Slade could get laid. <laughs> I know, I just think it proves my point. It vindicates me. So um, up yours, anyone who thinks there was a, a better year for pop music, <laughs> that was it. That's as good as it's ever going to get. Mm. Just ideas. There are ideas in pop again. This is the important thing. There's just so much going on. So much life of the mind. So much kind of um, cultural kind of fizz and crackle about it that would send your mind off in other directions to discover other things. Mm. Um, Even if those other things are just slightly more obscure records. But, uh, you know, it would probably take you far beyond that. I I just think it was um, a remarkable year. Mm. And and you know not and as I said at the start, not even the greatest top of the pops from that year, just no. a fairly typical. No, one. I mean nineteen eighty one. This is going to be year we're going to return to many a time and after. I, I can imagine. But the one the one thing that cool. struck me about this episode is virtually all British, isn't it? Yeah, apart from the the Motown thing. Yeah, yeah. So this is the part where I have to give you all the promotional shit. So let's get that over with. www.chart-music.co.uk facebook.com slash chart music podcast and on twitter we are chart music t-o-t-p and that is us for this episode thank you very much taylor parks lovely to hear from you sir pleasure as always simon price thank you very much for your vindication uh, of uh, of this episode you were you were right Hi, welcome i enjoyed it thank you very much chaps i'm al needham and i specialize in taking oldies and making them sound like they're out of 1981 <laughs> chart music all together all together lean on the pedals lean on and lift out silently all together all together lean on the pedals lean on and lift out silently walk and do can creep along can glide along when when there may be enemy near all together all together lean on the pedals lean on and lift out silently <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.